I'm Rob. I'm Richard. I'm Mark. And I'm Dave. And welcome to yet another episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast, where once again we've assembled at Dave's Fortress of Solitude to talk castles, Capaldi, companions, and target novelizations. <laughs> to 42 to Doomsday. As Rob has mentioned, we are uh, gathered here today with some special guests, David and Richard. Yeah. Guys, how are we? Yeah, good. Good to be here. Thanks for having us back. Absolute pleasure. Now, Dave. Uh, Mark. Welcome back in the country, first of all. You've been uh, travelling around to the UK. Uh, yes, I got back to the UK again just after Christmas. And how was Blighty? Look, it was very, very good. I have to say, one of the things that I enjoy most about going to somewhere like the UK, particularly London, is that if you're a fan of Doctor Who or just British television in general, all you have to do is get on the underground and suddenly there's just references to everything you could think of. Whether it's you get to Sloane Square Station, you say, oh, the Dalek Source is somewhere in the vicinity of Sloane Square or Marble Arts Station or even for something like Rumpold, you know, you get from you get to the stations that he used to go to on his way to the temple every morning. So that was really good, but I did get down to Castle Gracht from the Androids of Tara and yeah. I actually managed to find all the various location shots from the story whilst I was at the castle, which is a beautiful castle in its own right. Um, and I also got to catch up with both the Diddly Dum and Blue Box crew, and in fact recorded an episode of the Blue Box podcast, which I'll plug now. What number was that? 244. I enjoyed it. It was a good, good listen, that. Oh, thanks for that. Um, and of course, the other good thing about going to the UK is that I get to bring back half a suitcase full of books for all you guys. Again, oh, thank you very thank much, you Dave. Very much. Thank you. And uh, what did your haul bring back from the UK, Dave? Uh, there were multiple copies of the new J&T book by Richard Marsden, and I actually, when I got on the plane at Manchester with the, my copy of the J&T second edition, I thought, I'll just read all the new stuff that Richard Marsden's added to the end of that. And I enjoyed that so much that I just went back to the start and read the whole book again <laughs> between Manchester and Melbourne, and it is a fantastic read. On the, This is my third reading of the book, Yeah. but the new material at the end absolutely makes getting another copy totally worthwhile, Excellent. especially as I didn't have to pay UK postage to bring it back. Exactly, yeah. And it is a handsome volume, just looking at it. Uh, they've gone, Milk have gone for a hardcover version with a new cover. Yes, by Andrew Skilder. That Andrew Skilder. Yeah. Andrew, yes. Do we know how many words the extra section is? Is it 20,000, 30,000? Something like that, yeah. It, it, it's almost a third again of yeah. what the original book was. Okay. And what was your takeaway from reading that last third? Look, it's very, very honest about the process of putting it together. I think it has some real insights into some of the internal cultures of Doctor Who fandom, the relationships between production companies and studios and actors. Uh, I think that some of the official parts of Doctor Who fandom come off very, very badly. Is that the Pravda? Uh, yeah, DWM is probably comes off worse than anybody else, mm -hmm. and uh, look, others can read and make that judgment. Uh, certain actors don't come off that well. Uh, because they were willing to sort of spill their guts to Richard Marsden and then maybe had a bit of a change of heart when they got it all there. But a certain super fan was also going around stirring up apathy. Uh, and again, I'll let readers read that. But yeah, really interesting and honest look at how Richard Marsden's idea went from an idea to actually seeing print with the third publisher that said yes to him. Was that mm. was the first one that actually published it. Two others pulled out. It's amazing. It's a great book still. It's an amazingly good book. Yeah. It, I, I still say it's one of my three highlights of the 50th anniversary year. Mm. Whether you're a fan of Doctor Who generally or just television more generally, mm. it's a real insight into the workings of the BBC in the 70s and 80s. Mm. And brilliantly written. And 
amazing insight into Doctor Who. Mm. Really, really good. So I'll see if I bring back copies of that. Uh, the new Callum book, I brought back copies for you guys. Yes, you Woo-hoo. did. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mark, you've also picked up a second edition copy of the Marsden book. What, were you hoping to, what are you hoping to get out of a new reading of it? I just wanted a hardback version because the paperback I read about three times like Dave. But I think the extra section definitely, um, when I heard there was uh, it being written, I thought that's a that's a nice little coda to a already great book. So um, and plus Dave was in the UK at the time, so I thought I took advantage of uh, Ooh, no postage. No postage. Look, look, yeah. we joke about it, but it's very true. I would have really hesitated getting a second hardback copy yeah. if I had to pay another ten, fifteen pounds yeah. of postage. Oh, but yeah. to be able to get these books for the UK price yeah. makes it so yeah, much more and, and to be wild. honest I don't, I don't think we'd have got that Callum book uh, we no. hadn't had a delivery service well, to be it, honest yes. but it's shocking that oh, well, no. local delivery there was about $5 Australian coming out to Australia you would have probably had to pay the price of the book again because it is a brick it oh is. yeah they, they, they double the postage yeah. well the, the, the postage doubles the cost yes. to bring stuff out so I'm, I'm very happy to bring mm. To, to, to be a fan mule. So if there are any fans of uh, 42 to Doomsday in the UK who are coming out to Australia anytime soon and, and you'd like to do your podcast a service, bring an extra bag. <laughs> there was an article in the GQ magazine after uh, the announcement of Mr Capaldi leaving, which of course was announced the day after we released our last podcast, but look, you know, that's how we roll. Did everybody read that article? Yes. This, this is the one about Peter Capaldi and Doctor Who was a wasted opportunity. Yeah, that's, uh, to me when I read it, that was a uh, quite extraordinary piece of... What's Truth it? speaking? This sort of points the finger at one thing, but I think it was sort of a multiple... Well, yeah. It's, well, I mean, uh, the Tony's obviously, the author isn't happy with the show as it is now, isn't happy with the direction the showrunner is taking the show in, um, and clearly is just hoping we're going to clear the decks. One of the things that really interested slash saddened me about the coverage of this article, and I say this because it really sums up where a lot of Doctor Who fandom is at the moment, is people felt they either had to agree entirely or disagree entirely. And that sort of divided fandom very much. It actually became quite a nasty conversation. For my money, I'm actually in the halfway house. Do I think that Peter Capaldi could have been used better in Doctor Who in the last two years? Yes, I agree with that. I think that there have been issues with his era that could have been better. However, I've said on a number of occasions, and I reinforce that, I think the Capaldi era has been one of the best eras for a very long time. I think it is head and shoulders way above the the Matt Smith era. I've said before I didn't get a lot out of the Matt Smith era. I've really enjoyed the Capaldi era. There's a lot of stories in the Capaldi era I really like. His performance elevates some mediocre stories to being quite watchable. So I've got a lot of positives about the Capaldi era. However, I do agree there's more that could have been done with him. I think he could have been wasted. And on reflection after reading this article, the person or the character, I should say, that I point my finger at is Clara. I think the hangover of Clara for two years Mm. into Capaldi's era when she's such a part of the Matt Smith era. Matt Smith era was very involved in the lore of the show it really built up clara's part to the point where at the end of name of the doctor clara became the most important person in the whole history of doctor who and she appeared in everything and all of that nonsense for her to then carry on to the capaldi era made it feel as though matt smith's era was still not quite dead was still overshadowing capaldi we've seen the same with river song i think if he'd had a bigger break that could have been a better start to his era. Now that he has moved past Riversong and has moved past Clara, I'm really looking forward to his third season because I think that could be the best season yet if it's just Capaldi unplugged, so to speak. 
Richard, you haven't seen much of Capaldi's era. No, that's, which is fair that's enough, an understatement. Which is fair enough, but having read this article, well, what did you make of the article? I read it as, obviously, we're not very happy with the tone of the series it's taking. We're clearly not very happy with Stephen Moffat's approach to the whole show. The show is in need of a complete reboot. Um, Peter Capaldi would have offered the chance, obviously, to take the show in a completely new direction and clean it out. Whether that's the case, well, I really haven't watched enough of Capaldi to, to say, look, I... Uh, look, I'm not going to go through the whole my thing with the, with the show again. The, the, the thing is, though, you've cast him knowing that he would be working with Stephen Moffat, and you're getting, you are getting at the moment Stephen Moffat's vision for Doctor Who. So I think bleeding about Capaldi being a wasted opportunity is just... It's irrelevant. Because, let's face it, you, your argument is with the showrunner. So I don't think it matters who you would cast, because you're still going to get... If you're not happy with Stephen Moffat's vision, you could cast anybody in the Doctor's role, and you're still going to be unhappy with the way the show is being presented. Mm. Rob, what did you think of the article? In an era where coverage of the show uh, is you know, anodyne or pumped up by, say, DWM, it is refreshing to see an article that regards itself as speaking a certain truth as to whether that truth is you know based on anything other than the an opinion an opinion or the yeah. writer's dislike of the, of the of the way the show is being presented well that's up to the reader to make but the article in and of itself I mean it, it chimes with a lot of what I've thought um, so it, it, you know you'll always sort of gravitate to, to, to the arguments that you have, have made yourself but um, I think it's refreshing to see something like that if, as Dave was saying, fandom is you know split, well, fandom will always split on these sort of things. Fandom is nothing if not divided against you know against itself. Mm. So if, if if people want to take up arms and man the barricades, well, that's that's up to them. But in terms of presenting someone's view of how the new series, I mean, it actually doesn't necessarily cover just Moffat. It's I mean, one of the paragraphs begins following its two thousand and five reboot. Doctor Who has become increasingly painful to watch. It was soaked in melodrama. melodrama. Every denouement had to be accompanied by a swelling histrionic soundtrack. So he's not only condemning Moffat, but he's condemning the whole approach since 2005. Mm. Whether the writer is an old, is, is a classic series fan or not, it's, you know, I, I couldn't say. But there's clearly a problem. We all have a vision of Doctor Who that's steeped in our childhood, and what we're getting at the moment doesn't necessarily match that. And a lot of the criticism, anyway, that I feel comes from that. Mm. Dave, you mentioned before there's a lot of online criticism when the announcement that Capaldi was leaving? Where were you reading that? Because, I mean, I'll, look, I'll be honest with you, I, haven't, I don't frequent forums or anything like that. Uh, more around Twitter than really? anything. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of comments along the lines of he could have had... Essentially, there could have been another way uh, that mm. people thought he hadn't really lived up to his potential, mm. which I, I don't know if I agree with or not. I, maybe there's stuff he could have done better, but... As I say, apart from him being encumbered with the aspects of the Matt Smith era, I've basically really enjoyed the Capaldi era, so I don't have a problem. And three years for a doctor's about standard these days. Chibnall clearly has a vision of where he wants to go. Yeah. So be it. You know, mm. I'm, I'm not getting worked up about this stuff. I was just going to say, the problem with an article like this taking another tack is it's buried someone before they're dead. I mean, we still have Correct. The, the remaining third of Capaldi's era to go. Mm. New companion... You know, Moffat on his way out might feel rejuvenated to do something, have a different approach. None of, hopefully, none of the baggage from before. You know, River Song seems to have been now handled with um, 
the return of Dr. Mysterio. But, but I think they've already said she's in the next season, haven't they? Well, then there's another thing as well. Well, so. no, they've, they've inter- somebody well, on Twitter intimated. Okay, and she may not turn up until the very end. I'll, uh, I'll uh, Amy goodbye, Pond. Yeah, goodbye, crumpy old man or something like that. You know, yeah, maybe. it could be like Amy Pond returning for the, the Matt Smith's Doctor Saying they're going back to Victorian London, so that could well mean they <laughs> are going to <laughs> Article 50 has been triggered. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Moffsit means Moffsit, and we will make the best of it. But we still, as you say, have another year. Of course, Moffat's going to do some valedictory stuff. He's absolutely entitled after 43 years as the showrunner to do his, his stuff. But I think that outside of that stuff... I, I really think that if we go back to Moff, Moffat just doing what he does best, writing fun stories in the style of Blink, Empty Child, um, Listen, you know, those sort of really good stories yeah. where he's unencumbered by any other buggerizations and he's just telling a great story, that could be a really good season of Moffat paired with Capaldi unencumbered by anything else. Mm. That could be wonderful. I think that's I, it might not be, I don't know, but yeah. you're right, you know. Just because Article 50 has been triggered, we have a long time to go before we actually formally get to Moffson. I was thinking about this the other day, where I think Series 5 and Series 8 are very similar in, like, bang, New Era. It, it works for the most part. Yeah. Series 6 and Series 9, in my opinion, didn't work as well. In fact, in most places, it didn't work at all. So I'm hoping with this, the Series 10, it'd be similar to Season uh, 7 where it sort of, most of it did work and some of it didn't. So yeah. I've got, you know, I've got hopes, I've got high hopes for it, so... And, and, and season seven, again, was just a lot of good, fun stuff. And Yeah. Yeah, there was stuff in there that annoyed me, but I, I, I'm very fond of a lot of season seven. Yeah. So I, I'm very positive going into the final year of Moffat. Yeah. Now, we did ask on our underutilised Facebook page, I did post the article up there and ask for some listeners' opinions on that uh, article and uh, we had a, an email from Joel Constable which I'm going to hand over to Richard right now to read out. And Joel says, the article makes a good point. I personally believe that Capaldi struck a reasonably good balance between both the seriousness and humour that the role of the Doctor demands. He did a good job of blending the old and new aspects of the character. A few of the scripts in the last couple of years have certainly felt a bit lazy though. Some episodes like Time Heist just felt like something was missing. Others, like The Girl Who Died, were completely inconsistent with the tone set in other, better episodes. Jenna Coleman staying on for Series 9 didn't help either. Mm. She had a good run as a companion by the end of Series 8 and should have left at the end of Death in Heaven and given Capaldi and Moffat a clean slate for the next year. Mm. Unfortunately, I think her continued presence held the show back and in a sense stifled any chance for Capaldi's doctor to have room to breathe and really become established. Even a second companion alongside Clara would have helped. Series 9 was partially a wasted opportunity due to this. Even the big moment for Clara that could have saved her character's legacy, her death, and given the show some much needed weight, was ruined. Would be sad to see Capaldi go without having had a really decent run. Hoping Series 10 shakes things up and delivers some cracking stories. Joel. What do you think, guys? Well, I know we have made the point, or well, you guys have made the point, because I haven't watched it, but uh, <laughs> you, you guys have made the point before about... about um, Clara being there a season too long, mm-hmm. and, and I think there was there was a bit of arming and arming, wasn't there, about whether she was leaving? Well, she was going. She was going. Well, going. Yeah. And then and she, she changed her mind. Changed her mind, which in hindsight may have been a big mistake. I think it was. But yeah, that said, that said, I mean, I think we all would all agree that Capaldi is a strong actor mm. and one who's able to rise above any deficiencies in the script. So while 
having Clara around certainly affects what's going on in an episode. In and of himself, Capaldi is able to rise above that more often than Agreed. Not. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I think there's a sense of unfinished Matt Smith business running right through, uh, well, at least the first two series of Capaldi's run. And as you were saying, Dave, hopefully unencumbered, they'll uh, kick a few goals in uh, series 10. And then we'll have a hard mobset. Now, Rob, after the news broke that Peter Capaldi was leaving, uh, myself and my co-host Rob Irwin on the Doctor Who show did a podcast speculating on the future of the acting, or the future of who should play the, the role, including a few female names. And there's been a lot of speculation around various parts of fandom that the next Doctor will be female. You've, well, I, in I the past... must be female. Well, some people said he must, be, yeah. he must be female, that's right. Well, um, she, she must be female. I'm not quite, sure what the, not quite sure what the gender terminology is, <laughs> but certainly it's out there in the Who zeitgeist. Previously, Rob, you've pushed back on that, mm. and I believe you've been sent a challenge to give us the pro version of this. Yes, from the outset, which immediately undermines my argument, I am completely against having the Doctor be a female. Let's just put it out there. But taking it from the show's perspective and a production perspective and the BBC, uh, you know, most importantly, I think we can all agree that in the last couple of years, the show has lost viewers. It's lost perhaps up to a million viewers. They've just, they've just gone. Now, the BBC, see, I would argue that the BBC sees Doctor Who not as you know a drama on television, but a way of generating money. So if the show is on the decline, the revenues from the show are similarly on the decline. So, so, so it's a brand rather than a... Uh, exactly. Yeah, okay. exactly. So you're the BBC. You're, Doctor Who is about to enter a brand new era with a new lead actor and a new uh, showrunner. What are you going to do? Are you going to argue for the same? Are you going to argue to cast another another white man, another middle-aged white man? And you would say to yourself, well, how is that going to energise the viewership? How is that going to energise the coverage? It'll just be another another white bloke assuming the role of this science fiction show. So I would argue that if the BBC wants to draw eyeballs to the, to the show, to regain an audience, to excite coverage, to get the tabloids all over it, to build up anticipation for the new showrunner and the new series they must they must cast a woman because anything else will just be a bland retread of what's gone before what about a colored actor i think that casting a woman after 50 odd years would be a bigger just like hillary clinton you know at one point ascending ascending to the presidency would have been you know shattering that glass ceiling mm. I think for 50, you know, 2% of the uh, population, having a woman in a lead role of a tentpole BBC drama would be something far more energising and exciting and see a bump in the ratings. Would, would that be too big a leap? Right. For some people it will be. Well, I think this is the important point. Rob is absolutely right. The initial spike... I think would be quite formidable. But they say, well, what happens week two? Yeah, and week exactly. two, week two is the, going to be the problem. If it works, and if the whole show around it's structured right, so the way they do the, the new companion, the dynamic between the Doctor and the companion, the way the Doctor interacts with the rest of the liter- uh, narrative world, if that all works well, they'll come back for week two. If it doesn't work right, it gives everybody the excuse to not come back week two. So it is a huge roll of the dice, but... You're right. If you want to bring in a new audience and get attention going, there probably isn't a better way to do it than that. We are 12 years into the show coming back, and I've said this before, if nothing changes, in hindsight we may be seeing that this is the death spiral of the series. I think casting a female 
in the lead role is something that you would never have trusted to Stephen Moffat because he I don't think he writes female characters very well. I think this is something that a Chibnall, who's a straight up and down writer, would be more able to carry off effectively. The, the issue though is if we acknowledge that the show is, is maybe at least circling at the top of the spiral. Yeah. If the, the more of the same that, only accelerates that in my But opinion. I was going to say, if, uh, the problem is if your experiment with a female actor doesn't work, you're only going to you're also going to accelerate it. You're going to basically. But the thing is, they, down. but the thing is, these days, if, if Doctor Who goes off the air, you're only a burst of nostalgia three or four or five years down the track before it's, it comes back anyway. So if it's a noble failure, it's a noble failure. We've had, ten, you know, this is the tenth series we're about to enter. I don't think you can lose in this. I think it's win-win. And there yeah. you go. When Rob and Mark invited Rich and I onto the show, they said the main topic for the day was going to be the companions. So I sat down and decided to think about how we might put this together, and I came up with four phases. Interestingly enough, when I circulated this around the group, Richard said that he'd come up with something very, very similar, and in fact, our breaks were very, very close to each other. So I'm going to let you guys know what my four phases were. I won't tell you where I've put the gaps, because I think we'll explore that as we go on. Mm. But I've called phase one cast of equals, Phase two, the assistant. Phase three, desperate to be different. And phase four, the co-star. And as I say, Richard, you come up with sort of very similar sort of breaks. Broadly similar, yes. I think my, my breaks are in slightly different spots from yours, but I had actually had four phases as well, so. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about those, I think, obviously in chronological order. Phase one, what I've called cast of equals. I've said from Susan to Stephen, although of all the breaks I've got, that's the one I'm least confident about. What I'm talking about here is a period where the companion isn't so much a offsider of the Doctor or secondary to the Doctor, but you look at Ian and Barbara particularly, Stephen particularly, and even to an extent Susan and Vicky, it's a team. They're a cast it's of equals. It's an ensemble piece. It's an ensemble piece, it really is. Now, Richard, you had some interesting thoughts about the way that these people join the TARDIS, I, which I, actually defines them quite interestingly. I, I did. My, I actually had the 60s companions as, as one sort of rough grouping. And I didn't do it as I did it um, as, as, with the exception of Zoe, none of them really join him by choice. For example, the abductee and Barbara. You then have the companions who have, uh, like Stephen and Vicky and Victoria, join him because they've got nowhere else to go. You then get the ones like Dodo and Ben and Polly who just stumble into the TARDIS and, and are carried away. And then you have Jamie, arguably, has got nowhere to go either because really leaving him, I think, in post-coloured in Scotland would, wouldn't have been a happy time. Which is why the end of the war games is incredibly dark. Yes, <laughs> yes. By the time very, very actually dark. a pack of bastards. <laughs> yeah, get back to where you once belonged. I suspect the Duke of Cumberland would not have uh, looked upon Jamie fondly. No. And actually, the thing is that the time, actually, just going slightly off on a slight tangent, as, as we are wont to do, mm-hmm. um, the war games doesn't really actually account Unless they just totally cut their excise that whole bit from time as well, it doesn't actually count for the fact how they would have aged or anything how, while they've been gone. Because hmm. Jamie obviously travels with the Doctor for at least two or three years, presumably. And yes, he's, he's just unceremoniously just dumped back basically where he started from. Well, if, if you choose not to ignore the Doctor having greyer hair in The Two Doctors, yes. and Jamie clearly looking like he's 20 years older, it's a quite a long time. It, it is. And I get the feeling, as you say, the Time Lords clearly don't care that much about Jamie's fate, so no. if he you know, looks a bit different to when he left, well... Let's face so, it, they, yeah. know, they know he gets shot 10 minutes later anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, yes. so let's put a happy note on there. He gets rounded up next. <laughs> Which is probably why they exile the doctor so quickly so that they can avoid a nasty question from <laughs> him. <laughs> yes. um, anyway, I, I then had, they travel with the doctor, arguably not by choice. And I mean, look, Ian and Barbara obviously become close to the doctor, but really, as soon as the opportunity arises for them to go home, they take it. Mm. Yeah. Um, ben and Polly, as soon as they find out they're back in contemporary England, disappear mm. um, and, and take off. I guess the point then really is to what extent they travel with him because, my breakdown, how they travel with him because they must or because they want to. Jamie is obviously clearly very happy travelling with the Doctor. He and the Doctor are obviously very close. You can make the point, uh, Ben and Polly obviously go home as, and just said, as soon as they get an opportunity to. And then you're left with sort of Vicky, Stephen and, and really Victoria uh, leave because they've arguably found somewhere better to go. They found somewhere more stable or somewhere where they can obviously make a life for themselves. Um, I mean, you obviously you see the thing with Victoria in the web of fear. She's clearly starting to, to crack under pressure or whatever you want of, of mm. landing somewhere. She does that thing. Why is it everywhere we land something horrible happens? That's, that's, that's a very kind way of explaining her screening behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then you sort of ask, well, why the hell did she start in the oil rig and not with Professor Travers but, um, and, and his daughter? But So... They, they have the opportunity to make their lives for themselves. I mean, I did have the note here that, that uh, the War Machines clearly gives the Doctor a chance to ditch Dodo, so he takes it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I must admit, I know, I know, Richard, you and I are both very fond of the theory that the Doctor actually murders Dodo at yeah, some point. Well, that, and, and, <laughs> and that's why at the end of his so, no, we need to go now. What about Dodo? No, no, don't ask any questions. Let's yeah, just go. Let's, let's just go. go. Yes. Move along, move along. <laughs> that, 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 was, that was really funny when I heard that first put forward. Thank you, Splendid, uh, splendid Chaps, I think. It was, it was Splendid Chaps, yeah. <laughs> I think um, the, the cast of Equals, though, uh, for me, um, really does suit that run of companions. I mean, you, uh, clearly everyone knows in the Romans where they're having, basically having a, a family holiday together mm. and they're lounging around and it's the sort of thing that you can imagine Ian and Barbara and the mm. Doctor doing. Mum, mum, dad, daughter and granddad. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, having a bit, of, a bit of off time from all the adventuring. And, and the interesting thing in the Romans is that when the Doctor says, right, I'm going to Rome... It isn't, and I'm going to take my companions with me. It's like, I'm going to roam. You guys do what you want to do. Mm. You know, we're all mm. equal par- partnership in this. He's so, having a day trip, a side day trip to, to, to Rome. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. And the same in the chase, where Vicky and Ian decide they're going to go off and have a bit of an explore, and the Doctor and Barbara are going to get a bit of a suntan. They are very capable of having adventures on their own. Yes. And the other thing I would say with the cast of equals, I mean, we all know that at the end of the massacre where Stephen upbraids the Doctor quite drastically for his attitude. It's the sort of thing that a Victoria not necessarily could do. It's Stephen comfortable in his own skin because yes. he's had a successful you know, career mm. himself before he met the Doctor, can speak truth to power as such. And mm. not someone with an unequal power relationship could do it. And, and even Vicky, although that clearly there's a grandfather-granddaughter surrogate relationship there, she's very happy being straightforward with the Doctor. The Doctor treats her with a great deal of respect as well. Mm. Mm. She pushes back. Yeah, 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 absolutely. What about Katarina and Sarah? They're companions. Not, not, <laughs> well, conversation finished. <laughs> not equals? Look, I think Katarina is a very good example of a companion that was trialled and simply didn't work. They, they clearly work out very, very quickly that she yeah. doesn't work. Um, although mm. we'll later see with someone like Jamie, the ability to take a companion from the past who doesn't quite have contemporary knowledge can be made to work. Let's face it, ancient Troy was just too big a gap for Katarina. Yeah. Can I just counter that by saying Leela comes from a society with a similar lack of technology, similarly backward for want of a better word, but she succeeds as a companion. Is it a failure of production will? Is it the fact that 
woman who played Katarina is just not a very good actress, or is it it just wasn't going to work for her to be It's interesting because I, I know when uh, Darling Master Plan 2 was found, um, there was a, a few comments around her performance in that. I do remember the comment being made, ah, now we know why she's written out in episode 4, but which is perhaps a little unkind. Mm. She's doing best with the material she's been given mm. in the day. Yeah. I think it's a good point you make, Rob, but Leela coming from a alien society gives them just enough wiggle room mm. that when she needs to know something or be intuitive, it can just about be explained away. Whereas with Katarina, they went very hard very quickly on, I'm in God's temple and mm. I don't know anything and a tablet means a tablet of stone. And yeah. It just didn't work. Perhaps Leela is a more proactive character as a huntress yes. in a very dangerous society where if you are placid, you die. Mm. Whereas yes. Katarina being a handmaiden of a god, you know, serves in a temple, does nothing really other than follow the normal rituals. Yeah. And that's her day. Perhaps yeah. that mm. just doesn't work. Yeah. But does a noble sacrifice at the end, doesn't she? Well, good on her. <laughs> if you like any more counselling please call off what about Sarah Kingdom I think Sarah Kingdom fits very well into this trope because she's again a very powerful woman mm. very confident woman and she's very capable of as you say speaking truth to the Doctor and being his equal she stands up to Stephen um, in fact she and the Doctor actually sideline Stephen for a few episodes there in the Dalek master plan and treat him as oh you're only from the 24th century what would you know <laughs> which is quite quite funny actually um, yeah I think she fits in very well I, I think it's a shame we don't see more of Sarah Kingdom yeah I was going to say it'd be a really interesting dynamic if she had stayed well she, if she actually didn't die uh, for the rest of that uh, with her dodo how would she go is how, she, how would she go in a historical setting is she too bolshy is she too aggressive look the... I, that Surely that aspect of the character would have to have been toned down That's right. as it went on. Yes, it would have been interesting to see her go on, but when you have an epic like the Dark Master Plan, which mm. I think is a wonderful 13-part epic, mm. in effect, the death of a companion at the end of that does give it a huge amount more heft and really does bring home that, you know, this epic has finished. Well, we were just, as we come here this afternoon, we were watching Earthshock, and Earthshock's mystique relies a lot on the fact that they kill off a companion. If yeah. Adric survives, it becomes another Solomon story, mm -hmm. doesn't it? So, as you say, the Daleks' master plan, a lot of its heft at the end, particularly, goes down to Sarah dying. Mm. So the heft we're saying is towards Sarah's character, but when Katarina dies, it's like a... Mm. Yeah, but she dies, what is it, episode four? Is it's that right? She's not even a third of, well, she's a third of the way through. There's, there's less of a... And it's only her fifth, she's only in five episodes. Yeah. Because yeah. she only turns up in the Myth Makers in part four. Yeah. Mm. So yes. we haven't really got to know her, and yeah. where we, we have, she's her. out of her depth. Yeah. And indeed, interestingly enough, Katarina's actually paired with Brett Vine, as played by Nicholas Courtney. Now, if you're going to be overshadowed by anybody, <laughs> pairing you with Nicholas Courtney is a pretty safe way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So, Richard, I think we're going to disagree here, but I, I put the break there as sort of being the end of the cast of Equals, and then Phase 2, which I call The Assistants. And I've put that as being from Dodo through to Sarah Jane Smith. Now... I fully concede that within that there's a very big gamut and a very big spectrum of assistance. Yep. But this is the point where you now have the companion being on a tier down from the Doctor. So they are very much there to help the Doctor, to support the Doctor. Yep. Now, whether it's to formally assist the Doctor, like Lee Shaw and Joe Grant do, and again, they do it very, very differently, and even to an extent Sarah Jane does as well. And Sarah Jane is you know, very much the final evolution of that before we then get into the next phase. Yes, but well, I, but I, these are all off-sider characters in my mind. 
as I said, I broke it down differently. I broke it down by circumstance as opposed to... Style. Style. Yeah, style's the word. So I had, I mean, I, I think there's perhaps an argument Jamie's almost a co-star, probably, because he's in it for so long. He and Troughton clearly are a... He and the Doctor obviously are very close. He and Troughton obviously are very close and it comes across on screen. And, and I suppose you have Ben, who's a bit argumentative. Um, it will certainly with Troughton. He's quite happy to push back. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I, I agree. Look, I don't think he's a co-star. Uh, look, I, I certainly ummed and ahed about whether to take the, the, the cast of equals to the end of Polly yep. and Ben. You know, I think quite easily you could do that. Yeah. The problem is that Dodo doesn't fit in there. And, and no. you're right, ja- Jamie sort of does bridge these two. And Jamie's a very different companion to Victoria. Yes. Well, which, which makes it hard to draw yes, that line. Yes, well, so, so I broke it down by why they joined the Doctor. So Victoria, yeah. clearly, I mean, she's got nowhere to go. Yeah. Um, her father's dead, and unless they just leave her on Scaro, uh, <laughs> I wish they did. She she has to come with them, um, and then she obviously undergoes an evolution. I mean, there's that. Uh, I know there's a theory that there's a gap between the first scene in um, the first scene in Tomb of the Cybermen and the second scene in Tomb of the Cybermen because she's suddenly gone from wearing uh, crinoline dress to, to, to basically wearing a mini skirt, which in Victorian England would be you know taping basically akin to saying take me now. Yeah. Um, really. So I had it there, and I put the start of the real assistance. I mean, look, Zoe obviously joins through choice. I mean, she thinks that obviously this is going to be a lot more exciting than staying on the space wheel. And it was. Yes. <laughs> you then are left with, I had the assistance starting probably with Liz Shaw. And, and I guess you have the thing from Trout to Pertwee. There is a complete reformatting of the series. He's now earthbound. Um, they, you know, he becomes a scientific advisor. And she having been their original scientific advisor, is then relegated to, as she says, passing him the test tubes and telling him how brilliant he is. Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt. Where, wherever you draw the line, I, I fully agree you can, that, that line's yeah. a very, very grey one. There is a shift from the cast of Equals to yes. clearly being a supporting character, clearly being led by the Doctor. And even Jamie, although he's a very key part of the show, he still will follow the Doctor and sort of go where the Doctor directs rather than branching out yes, on his own. On his own. Yes, yes. Um, and then you have, if you go in then into the assistance thing, you then have, well, Joe is, is immediately put forward to the doctors to get, get, get rid of her, basically, they're just going to dump her off on the doctor. Really, well, they do. I mean, it's yeah, effectively, they, they need something for her to do, so I'll yeah. put her with the doctor. Um, Sarah is, I think, really, she's an assistant probably with Pertwee, because Pertwee is the mother hen, as I think we, we has been described. Tom, I think it's a very different relationship. I mean, you get into probably season 13 and 14. She clearly is really enjoying travelling with him and really enjoying that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And again, has no real desire. I mean, she has a little dummy spit in, um, in, in Hand of Fear when she's just venting, basically, that, that all these things keep happening to her. But I mean, when the Doctor says, well, you actually, you do have to leave, she's really like, oh, really? I wasn't yeah. serious. <laughs> Yeah. I, don't, I don't really want to go. And maybe you can make the argument that you can put the end of the assistant block actually being in the middle of Sarah's run at Planet of the Spiders. I think. And then you have, well, then you have just this huge block where there's just no female contemporary London companion for a, a huge bit, which I guess then leads into your third. And that's actually where I had that break as well from Leela onwards. And just before we get to that next section, how do you account, Dave, for the change from a cast of vehicles to the assistant what is happening there i think there's a couple of factors at play there one of them is that the way the show's been made has changed quite a bit 
and part of the reason why in the 60s you need this cast of equals, as we know, is for technical reasons, mm. so that you can actually have multiple adventures going on on multiple parts of the stage that you can flick between instantly like a play. Mm. By the time you got to the 70s, it's not being filmed anything like that. The other thing I think is that the character of the Doctor does evolve considerably between An Unearthly Child and The War Games, to the point where originally the Doctor was conceived as being part of an ensemble cast, and Ian was really the big male lead, but now he's absolutely all about it, and John Pertwee more than any other Doctor before. John Pertwee is the leading man, mm, and yes. if you're going to have a leading man, you can't have a co-star. No, and, and he's also the point where the, the Doctor changes from, and I know we've discussed this before, from really being the smartest guy in the room, to now he's a capital H hero. Um, he can, I mean, if you watch what he does, he can fly anything, pilot anything, he, he knows he's a font of knowledge. Um, he, he can, can go to a, he can go to a self-induced coma. He can, yes, he can, stand, he can stand, what, 8G acceleration or something. Um, yeah. He's a man of action. Yes, he is. Yeah. James Bond-White. Yeah, and, and, and mm. you can see the production team within this assistant sort of style gives them various different sorts of things. I mean, Victoria is very much a helpless damsel in distress type character. Yeah. Zoe is not, but she's still you know, screams when needs to mm. and gets into peril when needs to and needs to be, you know, becomes a peril monkey that needs to be rescued by the Doctor and Jamie on occasions. Liz Shaw, they've tried to go for a much more austere, smart sort of assistant, but she's, her job title is to be the Doctor's assistant. So she's very much there. They find that that didn't work as a dynamic because John Purby was the star and the hero. So they then go to almost the other extreme with Joe Grant, which makes for a very friendly family sort of thing. We probably need to touch on the unit. The, the unit family. The unit family in a moment. And, and then Sarah, again, is a, an evolution of that. And ab absolutely, I agree with Richard. By the time you get to Sarah with Tom, the idea of them just being an assistant is very much it's coming to an end. And you can see the evolution out of that. Yeah. But, you know, where you draw the line is pretty important. But, yeah, you can see there's a clear evolution there. Mm. The uh, unit family was raised. Let's discuss that. Well, I guess I'll ask the question, are any of the Brigadier and or Mike Yates and or Sergeant Benton companions? No. I always think of them as supporting. Supporting cast? Supporting cast. Yeah. There's that, there's that thing where they have to travel in the TARDIS, don't they? But then Benton has, well, it's not really, it's got transported. Mm. I've always thought of them as, as supporting characters, but like, you know, in the new series, look at it, it's Mickey and... And, yeah, um, it's, it's hard because I mean, I mean, some, some list will yeah. will list them. That's why yeah, it's just companions. And I mean, look, but, but that's the, just fans being overly, you know, dogmatic. Well, I mean, the doctor does say on, on occasions that you know the brigadier is is his close is his closest friend, um, and they're, they're very obviously. I mean, the doctor when he has the TARDIS, the use of the TARDIS restored to him, he still comes back to Unit HQ. Mm. Now that could be, you know, because they got a good kebab shop down the street, but. Um, he clearly is because he's quite comfortable there and he wants to, you know, and he obviously goes out with the Brigadier on occasion. Um, and they're obviously friends. Yes, and Mike Yates, well, look, I don't think Mike Yates is a companion. He is, as you say, a supporting character or a current character. But he does get a very well-worked-out story arc mm. from him appearing in Terror of the Autons as a very fresh-faced, wet-behind-the-years new officer mm. through to him falling out of grace in the Green Death and further out of grace and you know, betraying unit in Invasion of the Dinosaurs and redeeming himself as a civilian in Planet of the Spiders, which 
if, considering he's not actually a companion, it's probably a better yeah. story narrative than most companions well, actually get. And you probably could only do that in the classic series anyway with a supporting character. character. Yeah. 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 I think the I think the format militates against that. Up until perhaps Ace. Uh, anyway, in the seventies. Mm. Although speaking of Mike Yates, it's always interesting. Uh, although clearly the intent of the show was that he had a bit of an, uh, the eye for uh, Joe Grant and you know going out on yeah. dates, in the Virgin New Adventures he ends up with Tommy from Planet of the Spiders. Yes, he does. So yes. there you go. I did not know that. Your face says everything. Fan wank. <laughs> <laughs> So we've talked a lot about uh, the assistants and we've had a run up to Sarah, but of course Harry uh, forms part of that group, doesn't he? Well, yes, we didn't talk about Harry. Uh, I think Harry does fall into the assistant category fairly well. I, I don't think he's a co-star. Mm. Um, he, he's a slightly different style of companion, dare I say, because of the different gender. Mm. Now, I don't mean that in a sexist yeah. way, but clearly the character's going to be written differently. No, but I, and I suppose there, there is probably that underlying thing where he becomes a bit redundant probably yes. fairly quickly because I guess at the time he was cast the, the thinking was the Doctor would be an older actor and, mm. and he would become sort of the, the friendly muscle. Mm. Um, but of course when they cast Tom um, he sort of becomes the sort of bumbling sidekick a little bit. Yeah. Um, although he is shown, I mean he's, you know, one minute he puts his foot in the giant oyster in, uh, but, but I mean there's that bit at the start where he's, you know, Tom steps on the landmine mm. um, where he's quite calm and no, yes. look, you know, we just stand still and I'll, we'll, mm. we'll brace it and whatever. Mm. Yeah, he gets some great stuff to do in Terror of the Zygons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Genesis of Dark. Genesis well. of Dark, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I've, I've got a little love for Harry, but yeah. I think he's very much an offsider. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I suppose in an alternate universe where it's an older actor who's cast, Harry stays for a couple of seasons, like Sarah did. But very possibly, yeah. Hinchcliffe yeah. actually regretted writing out Harry so quickly. He yeah. actually thinks that, uh, in retrospect, he should have let him carry on through season 13. He, he felt that they uh, didn't utilise the character as, as what they should. And that's probably a fair statement, to be perfectly honest. Because yeah, I, think so. I think Harry works, yes, he works great in that dynamic between Liz Sladen and Tom Baker, but Harry and the Doctor, especially in Genesis, when yeah. they're having those scenes in, in yeah. Ryder's office and things like that, absolutely uh, top notch. Yeah, very it, it, underrated, isn't he, Mara? He is. Yeah. It, it does, of course, give you the problem, though, that you need to find something for either Harry or Sarah to do. That's right. Which, you look at something like Pyramids of Mars, if you'd have to split off and have a, another yeah. subplot off there, it wouldn't mm. have worked as well. They could have locked them in a cupboard or something. Well, that's, that's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. But I guess that brings us to Phase 3, which is the segment where I think, Richard, you and I most were uh, in so We certainly started at the same point. Um, yeah. I've done it as being from Leela to Perry which is the run of companions who are not English contemporary people. Yep. So you've got Leela, who's an alien, Romana, one and two, who are both time ladies, Nissa, Adric, uh, Tegan. Tegan, who's from Australia, yeah. Turlo, you know, all aliens yeah. are from, not from Britain, mm. until you, and, and Perry's American. So I think you've just got this run of the show now being into its 12th, 13th year, where, and you know, we were talking about shows at this point before Rob trying mm. to, invigorate themselves and find something new you've got a production team desperately trying to find a new version of the companion after yeah. 12 years or in the case of some of these people after 20 years mm. what can you do differently but that said i think some of the most loved or certainly the best presented companions are in this run who are your favorites in, from that run 
Oh, look, I think Leela is not a favourite companion of mine, but I've got a lot of respect for Louise Jamison's performance in the character. She really makes it work. Mm. I've got a huge amount of respect for Mary Tam. I think Romana 1's a wonderful companion. Lots of people love Lala Ward as Romana 2. Tom mm. certainly did, briefly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but then you also get into the area where it became sort of my era of the show in terms of growing up. And for me, having male companions like Adric and Turlow was a real kind of big deal for me as a very young person getting into Doctor Who. Mm. Actually seeing somebody who I could identify with mm. on, on the screen was quite cool. Were the one-page characterisations, do you think, that? I mean, if you look at, for example, Teague and Javanka, Australian, Bolshe, mouth on legs. Yes. Turlow, want to kill the Doctor. We find out later on that he's escaped... Uh, what's it called? Orion? Trion. Trion. Escaped Trion. I always think about some of those characters as basically, and and potentially we'll get to that, that with Mel, just basically a, character, a press statement. This is what the camp well, companion's going to be and that's it. But I would argue that that actually gives the actor more uh, space to manoeuvre. I mean, all right, Tegan's character is, you know, a, a one-sentence description. I think Nicola Bryant will disagree with that. But you have also got a lot more emphasis here on the idea of the production team wanting to own, in every sense of the word, the companion. And we know JNT particularly was very, very upset that when he introduced Nyssa, Johnny Byrne co-owned that character because he created her for the Keep of Draken, mm. rather than the production team creating them. So JNT was very forceful on that. Mm. And for all of JNT's successes in Who, let's face it, he wasn't a storyteller. So him creating companions wasn't always the best thing. And, and you look at Adric, the idea that Christopher H. Bidmead and JNT had for Adric really didn't last more than about three episodes. It really doesn't last even to the end of Full Circle. Yeah. No. I mean, I think some of that perhaps is... Um, well, we're jumping forward a bit, but I, I think perhaps some of that is maybe when they find Matthew Waterhouse and gets on set, I, I suspect. What he can't do. Well, I think so. I mean, yeah. look, it's... Having... I don't really want to Adric bash. I mean, look, I didn't particularly like any of the later Tom Baker and Davison companions, I'll be honest. Why is that? Adric, I don't know. I was probably a bit older, so when Adric didn't really work for me, I just, because he becomes the fifth wheel very quickly. And, and I think it's it's hard, because it's only this, it's only his second acting thing, and it's very much a case, he really is Adric. I mean, he's just chucked in at the deep end, basically. Because Doctor Who was a series that yes it's one of their it was going one of their big rating and very popular programs but it was made at a, still being made at a machine gun pace um you had a, a cast and, and crew who really just expected you just you really were just expected to come on and know exactly what you were doing bang 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 let's move on and of course they really made no allowances for the fact that he was young really inexperienced really didn't know what he was doing yeah and, 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 and probably wasn't a very confident actor mm. Uh-huh. And you contrast that with, for example, when Katie Manning started. And John Pertwee very clearly puts the metaphor, I could put the literal arm around the shoulder and says, right, you're new, I'm the star, let me teach you how this is going to work. Let me give you a lift in the work. Let me let me teach you what does and doesn't work, yeah. how to be a good actress. You know, if you're feeling, you know, there are those stories about when she felt, you know, put out during Terror of the Audons, and Pertwee's gone, well, hang on, Katie's not comfortable, stop, let's do this again. And treated her as such. There's 
very clear Tom didn't do that for Matthew Waterhouse. No, well, but, I think I think when your first day ends with Tom shouting, just piss off at you or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, look, not look, a great look, first work day. No, it's not really, really first day no. of work. No, no look, look I, I, as I say, I have a very fond place in my heart for Adric. Partly, I think, because you know he was that young male companion when I was a young boy. I think that his time with Tom is a really, really good. I think he's great in Warriors Gate. He's wonderful in Keep of Trark. He's yeah. pretty good in Legopolis. Yeah. And, and that, that dynamic is one I would have liked to have seen a lot more of. He clearly doesn't work with Davison. Yeah. Clearly Matthew Waterhouse and Peter Davison not only did not get on, but still don't get on. And he's given no, some terrible scripts. You know, the way the, I don't think clearly is that fond of him either. Yeah. I mean, Terence Dudley writes him terribly badly. Terrence Dudley just writes terribly badly full stop. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, don't, I don't mind Fortitude Doomsday as a story, but the script's not great. No. And Adric's part in that script, and even Tegan's, mm. is terrible. Mm. So you, as you say, you take somebody on their second ever acting job, he's been given no coaching by the crew, no coaching by the cast, and given a dud script, and people go, oh, look at him, he's got an awful character, get rid of him, I'm glad he was killed. That, to me, I, I just think it's quite, quite unfair. So if you watch Airshock Part 4 now... In the last couple of minutes, and say Adric, and boom. What are your feelings on? The, I, it the, I, I still tear up. It's funny because I do too, but I think it's because I remember watching it. I think it's that that nostalgia thing. Yeah. I think yeah. I, I is, remember. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say I haven't seen Astro for probably since it came out on DVD, but my memory of those final moments of Adric on the deck, holding his brother's mm. belt, and you know just the look on his face and the words he says. That is. Probably, you know, one of uh, Matthew Waterhouse's finest moments on the show. And it can't fail to be because it's such a heavily emotional scene. Mm. Um, I think with the... You're right. I think with the right material and a more sympathetic writer through his run and the fact that Davison and Fielding, you know, just loathed him then and still do now, and after 35 years, just grow up. Yeah, and get that's true. I think... Oh, uh, sorry, you only have to listen to the Earthshot commentary where they just talk over him and cut him off and basically treat him like rubbish all the way through it. There's clearly not all the way. Well, he did say, he says in his book, in his autobiography, when they came, I think it was a shot, one of the commentaries he did, uh, they were in the room together, and he said it was just like being back 20 years previously, like he and Sarah Sutton were just the children, yeah. while, while Peter and, and Janet Fielding just... With the adults. Yeah, were the adults, yeah. and they were just treated like the two children in the yeah. room. And that has to be enormously dispiriting, that now that you're a fully-fledged adult, other adults, mm. who you, you're, you know, effectively your peers now, mm. treat you like a child. It's it's unforgivable, and it's it's... it's now, today we would call that bullying. Oh, we would do. I mean, I know we've got enough track, but it's something that I feel yeah, very but, strongly but, about. I guess to get back on track, you contrast that with someone like Mary Tam, mm. who again, Tom had various issues. Well, Tom had issues with most of his companions, let's be honest. Mary Tam was such an established and confident actress that if Tom was going to give her grief, she was just going to walk she, all over him. Well, she, she, she wasn't afraid, afraid to stand up to it. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. It's the same with Louise Jamison as well. She... Well, well, I, th I think she took a while to get used to standing up to him. Yeah, oh, fair enough. But when she did, yes. their, their relationship suddenly got a lot better. Yeah, but the point is, Mary Tam... Look, I don't think Romana One is a particularly brilliantly written companion. There's actually not a lot of character in there. Mm. But Mary Tam makes that a character because of her ability as an actress. Yes. And so the benefits of casting a more experienced companion certainly shine through there. Mm. Lala Ward was probably... Not as good an actress when she started, but he's much better written. And by that stage, you've got more established production people looking after that. So you can see that balance there, I think. And Adric falls the wrong side of that balance, and I think it's unfortunate. Are they still waiting for Mary Tam in season 17, you think? Certainly for the first part, they'd have yeah. to have been. So it's interesting how 
Lala played it, obviously played it the way she wanted to play it. But really, I think Creature from the Pit, she's very, I think, Mary Tam-esque. I mean, she's, yes. she's dressed like Mary Tam yeah. in that white flowing robe, which sort of goes back to the Ribos operation. So, yeah, I think it's only until really City of Death that Lala Ward slash Ramona Mark II really sort of come into her own. Yeah, and, and you know, Nissa, I would struggle to write more than about half a sentence about Nissa's character. Yeah. But Sarah Sutton is one of those actresses that I, I used to be quite dismissive of. I think partly because I didn't have any relationship with her mm. when I was a young boy. Mm. But as an adult, I look back and actually respect how much she's doing mm. with how little she's given. Especially Arkham Infinity. I, 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 yeah. yeah. I suppose you're almost in that period, though, when she first comes on, you're in that thing where there are three of them fighting for lines. Mm. Um, and, and it is very much, and I know we've made this point before, it's okay, you haven't had a line for a minute or two, so we better give you something to say here. And then, okay, now you need a line, mm. now you need a line, and, and we have to keep finding something for them to do. I'm really surprised, J&T, because obviously there was, three, there was three people too much in the TARDIS, sorry, three people too many in the TARDIS in season 19, and repeats it again mm. in season 20. Yes, obviously not for as many stories, but you think you would have maybe got rid of, say, Nyssa earlier, and had Tegan or Yeah, or something like that. It's funny, I'd probably have the other because I, I mean I remember just going back to Andrew for a second, I remember being quite shocked at the end of Earth Shock when, when Andrew died, and I was like that was a real like wow moment because I was only quite about twelve and of course I wasn't reading magazines or anything, so that really was totally fresh and it was just like wow. Um, I do remember being very happy when I thought they'd written Tegan out at the end of time. <laughs> <laughs> And then sort of being disappointed when, when we go forward another 12 months and, of course, they do Ark and Infinity and, oh, she's back. Mm. And a giant chicken's there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah well. Yeah. And can I just say, I was just reflecting on this the other day, I think one of the greatest lost opportunities is that imagine what it would have been like if after Earthshock, at the end of uh, Time Flight, Tegan's like, you know what? Now I've realised that travelling you means that, you know, my life's at risk. I'm out. Mm. And that's and that's why she leaves the TARDIS, and then they pick up with her in Ark of Infinity. That would have been a really cool moment. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yes. without the companions to go, hang on, this guy I've been travelling with for a couple of years just died, and the Doctor can't do anything to protect him. Mm. I'm, I'm not sure I want to be here anymore. This is a bit dangerous. It's like so, a so, isn't it, really? Well, it is. It's a thing. <laughs> David's completely right. I'm, I'm like coming back quick, and hanging quick, out. Quick, if we're getting there, we can take off without her. Quick, just <laughs> 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 You actually killed her. <laughs> But the way Tegan reacts at the end of Resurrection is probably how she should have reacted at the end of yes. Timeline. Yes. Uh, time yes. And, and bolted it, and then yeah. that gives you the Doctor and Sarah Sutton. Yes. Yeah. And Nissa, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Turlock. Vizsla Turlock. Vizsla Turlock. I bloody love Turlock. I think he's great. Yeah. It's a great companion, great actor, and yes. we all know a great bloke as well. Yes, yes. he is. Yes. Uh, he is. 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 You were saying before that you know a character like Tur- Turlo is effectively one page or half a page description. Yeah. What makes him such a good actor? Uh, character. The TARDIS team of him, uh, Tegan, and the Fifth Doctor descend. Once they get over the whole killing the Doctor storyline, because let's be honest, it's not going to last. A is a dumb concept, really, to be honest. But B, because it's not going to last more than, but, but more it, than three, it, three or four stories. Can, can I just say at this point, yeah. I think a lot of this pushback about how it was a really dumb idea, how much of that stand to 20 years of Eric Saywood bleating about that? Mm. Because, in effect, the way the story is actually written, only in Mordred Undead does he want to kill the Doctor. By the end of that, mm. Turlow's realised that the Doctor's a really cool dude. Yeah. And Terminus and Enlightenment are basically about him trying to get away from the Black Guardian. Yes. Because he knows he doesn't want to... So, this idea that he spent several stories trying to kill the Doctor, 
is complete and utter myth. He only spends one story trying to kill the Doctor. He's really agonising over the choice of being pushed into that. Well, he is. I mean, I suppose this is a bit maybe, that get, for maybe that doesn't come, come across then no, as much. I think it does. I mean, because sure. I suppose this is a bit of the start of Terminus where the Black Guardian tells him to rip the piece out of the TARDIS. Yeah. And, you know, an old magically spiritual way or whatever it is. <laughs> sure he will. Yeah, of course he will. Trust me. But... I, I suppose he spends. I mean, he spends most of the rest of Terminus running around in the in the sort of under the floor grates. Yes, well, and the aliens. Um, and then of course, I mean, he has the big scene though in, in Enlightenment where he does. I'm never ever going to serve you ever again. Yeah. And, and you know, jumps over the railing of the. Uh, when he's up on the railing yeah, of the ship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's clearly made the decision. He's not going to kill the Doctor. Mm. So that only lasts a story, and then it's about him not wanting to kill the Doctor. Mm. And then he's got lots of really good stories where he's just this. Wonderfully cynical. Except the awakening was he's literally locked in a cupboard with um, Tegan's granddad. Well, what do you like as a battering ram? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you reckon um, Mark Strickson slash Turlo would have worked with Colin Baker's Doctor? Because there was talk about that mm. pr- apparently happening. Because mm. that's a lot of personality on one screen. Well, the, the hair would have flashed with a coat. Let's forget that. <laughs> do you think it would have worked? It could have looked... It depends on how they did it. The idea of the Sixth Doctor sort of pushing the boundaries and rather than having Perry go, oh, my God, I'm so unhappy with you being a prick to me... But I'm going to stay anyway. Yeah, but, but having Turlo go, Doctor, stop being a prick, mm. <laughs> it would have been a really different dynamic. Mm. We would have to got more double doses of Spectrox to save them both. <laughs> there you go. There's a big finished production coming soon. One hopes not. What if Turlo had stayed? <laughs> Actually, yeah. we didn't mention K9. One for the kids, I think, more than anything else. Yes. Do you like, do you like K9? I, I thought he was an interesting idea. I don't really... I, I must admit, I, he sort of becomes... A get-out-of-jail. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's quite, quite quickly. Is he the, is he the old the classic series version of the... Uh, the Magic from the, yeah, the Well, I suppose he is. I mean, you know, I've got something that could deal with that. Bring out the... Whip out the dog whistle. Mm. Look, I certainly remember, again, as a boy really loving K9 I don't dislike him now but he's kind of just there and you do notice more and more how many stories they do push as far back as they can that moment when the Doctor does say oh call K9 at this point Mm. to the point that some of them like Power of Crawler just go nah we're not going to have him no Mm. but yeah K9 yeah yeah look that's true as well I mean, I suppose it's interesting. Once they sort of make the announcement he's going, you notice then they sort of start inflicting a huge amount of damage on him. I mean, he oh, yeah. goes in the seawater. Um, you know, Bill, Bill Fraser gets to kick him. Yeah. Uh, and then he gets <laughs> his off. head knocked off. Knocked off in yeah. full circle. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. And then he gets to make Kane on company. I mean, really, the poor... <laughs> they had it in for the poor bugger, didn't they? <laughs> Kane on and company is not as bad as some people say it is. It's, it's, its greatest flaw is that it doesn't create the premise for an ongoing series mm. as a standalone right. piece of drama it's not that bad look y- yes the twist is so bloody obvious you think it's going to be the opposite mm. but as a standalone piece of drama it's fine it's failing is that it doesn't set up an ongoing series oh, I'm sure they could have gone around busting witch covens and all around the country because I think that was pretty much well that's what the annual is if, yes. you, if you read the annual they're all basically <laughs> it's the X-Files it is it's the X-Files for the X-Files it's the canine files mm. right. and it took two episodes of season's 19 uh, episode run to make it so uh, mm. yeah there you go yeah. and 
uh, let's not forget Perry. And who can forget Perry, frankly, after Planet of Fire? Any thoughts on Perry within that particular paradigm, Dave? I don't have a lot of original thought on Perry, I've got to say. Clearly she is another iteration of let's do something different. She's done as an American, done to appeal to potentially American fans. I've got to be honest, both as a boy and now as an adult, I don't get a lot out of Perry at all. Mm. In fact, I remember finding her quite grating mm. when I was a lot younger, and I've, I've come to is, put that to the side. But is that probably is that because she spends most of season twenty-two just arguing with Colin? Well, I, I, I think so. That's, that's why I say it's nothing unoriginal to say. I think it's very clear that the way that she is written and the relationship of the character with the Doctor in season twenty-two is terrible. Yes, when they. Don't rewrite it, but Colin and Perry make the decision to play it differently yes. in Mysterious Planet. We all know that that's far better. I think we all agree had Perry been written that way in, or portrayed that way in Season 22, then uh, that would have been far better. But I've got to say, I think Nicola's another example of somebody who was cast probably earlier than they really should have been in their career. I don't think she's got the chops quite to do the role justice a number of times. I would agree. I watched Time Lash earlier in the week and you can tell that she's a very she's an actress who's very early in her career. Yeah. There's just well, it is she, like, she lacks conviction in some of the scenes and I think that can colour your view of the character. Well I was going to say I think it's pretty much her first acting job isn't it? It, it, it was because I, I remember when she was actually out here for convention back um, 16 or 17 years ago now. And she was talking about how when she was cast, she still didn't have her equity card. That's right. And she was going to have, doing like you know, little adverts, little side jobs, so she could get the required points to get her equity card or mm. something. So it was her first official job with the card, yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, and I'll, just as an aside, Time Lash isn't as terrible as everyone says. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not great. No, but it's not awful. I mean, it, helps, it helps if you're a Darrow file. But, uh, but, even, but even he isn't as overwhelming as I was led to believe. No, he's not. No, no. I mean, I will say he is right in the doco. It does turn to shit when he dies. The last, I'm <laughs> the last good the, moment of time lapse. Well, is seriously, it? the last probably 15, 20 minutes of time lapse, he's utter crap. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. I, I like the really st the start of Time Lash, the stuff mm. with a Malian Rennes, and he goes in and he's got to divert power from the hospital to the Borads thing. That's creating a really interesting uh, dystopian environment. Yes, and I, I really like that stuff. It does slowly degenerate as yeah. it goes by, and then by the time you've got the bandrels, mm. by the time you've got that sort of like five minute soliloquy in the TARDIS to try and pan oh, it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, I mean, Eric Sayward is completely culpable with that, isn't he? Well, really, it, it's a, it's a, unfortunately, it's a, because they're doing the 45 minute episodes, it's really, it's a three part of pushed out to four. Yeah, no, it, I mean, I could, it only has three episodes. I mean, that's years. the thing, it would, it would work actually as a 45 minute story, mm. and if you cut another episode for two doctors, theoretically, you could have got another mm. story in season 22. Mm. It should have been another way. More opening nights. Yeah, exactly mm. right. Well, that's I mean, right. Time that should probably could have worked as a 45 minute story. Yeah, I think you could have pushed that to an hour and it worked. Uh, you, you I, I think under the old time. system, you probably could have done three episodes with it. If yeah. you'd done like a They Didn't Require a three episode story, I think there's enough there probably to, to do three. The other thing is, in a in a good season where the script editor had employed a number of good writers, mm. you can get away with employing Glenn McCoy as a less experienced writer and the script editor having the time to nurture him through yep. the process. Yep. When you've got a situation where Philip Martin's really the only one who knows what he's doing that season? You've got the mess that's Attack of the Cybermen. Like, I, I don't mind Attack of the Cybermen, but the scripting process was clearly a mess. Yeah. You've got the two doctors where Robert Holmes is an established writer, but the entire story is going to be rewritten from New Orleans to 
uh, severely in one go. Yeah. Pippin Jane Baker clearly needs some nursing. Eric Saywood's got to write all of Revelation of the Daleks. And in the middle of all of that, he's got a novice scriptwriter. Yeah. You know, what, what do you expect to happen? True. Mm. That's fair enough. Maybe I was a bit too harsh. Maybe. But, but like, I, I must admit, I'm not a, I'm not a rap for Perry. Um, okay. I actually found her very grating, and now I can tolerate her, but she'd be way down the list of my favourite companions. Yeah. Thoughts, Perry? Yeah, I'd be much the same. As I said, I was quite... Watching them back, I mean, I, I don't remember them making a huge other than Planet of Fire, but I don't. <laughs> for goodness' sake! Oh no! All right. Well, what was a big deal back then? Don't well, well, was whatever, whatever. That's the thing. Every fourteen-year-old boy suddenly took a new interest in well, Doctor well, Who. Maybe not every fourteen-year-old. Well, all right, a large yeah. number of fourteen-year-old boys, including took... friends of mine who never bothered with the show before. That's right. All <laughs> of a sudden, they're yes. on board. Well, it's like this every week, is it? Well, I'm exactly. Like... I wonder why you're a fan, Mark. But yeah. uh, sorry, going no, being, being serious. No, yeah. Um, look, I I must admit, she probably wasn't a companion that really no, I, I really talked to. Uh, for me, I think it was a lot because. And particularly watching them back now, you watch season 22, there is a very sort of a... It's an abusive relationship, really, yes, between yeah. her and the Doctor. Um, and there's no other way to say that. It is it, it is really an abusive relationship. Because you just... Why why do you stay with this bloke? She does really sort of just stand there a little bit. Let, let, let it happen. Let it happen. I mean, in time, like at the start, where the Doctor is shouting at her, and she's just sort of gone rigid with the assault, effectively, yeah. of words. It is... Look from twenty first century sensibilities. It is. It is. It's uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Yeah, it is very it's uncomfortable. If she had more material like caves, uh, well, if she had a doctor like the fifth doctor, someone who that's was a, she a, a more person, who was actually a, yeah, that's the thing, a, a softer character to work against. Yeah, yeah. she and my impressions of her are she's better in those two final stories of the Davison era than she is in the entirety of you know the, the first Colin Baker season. What about season twenty three? Look, she's better in Mysterious Planet. I mean, look, I actually think probably her best moments are perhaps the right at the end in Mind War. Mm-hmm. Um, I think really in the role, and that, that's when she's playing Christopher Ryan in her body. But yeah, <laughs> and you know what? After a, a season and a half of various alien monsters trying to get well, into that's the other pants, thing. Uh, having every um, every character lusting after her, one eventually does effectively. Yeah, it's just a brain swap. It's mm. when you think about it. That's really disturbing, people. <laughs> yeah. And, and I suppose you can also say, even with her death, because she had a really good... I mean, I, again, I remember watching... Even when I knew it was coming, I, I remember watching Mind Warp. And, and at the end of that, where you've killed... Pe- and that was just like, wow, yeah. really? And then, of course, they go for that cop-out ending right at the end of the season, where, you know, yes, yes, because Life with Brian Blessed is obviously... <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like series nine, series nine, doesn't it? Cop out ending with Clara. Although I do like the observation that's been made before that the cliffhanger of part three of Mind Warp, where it also looks like Perry's been killed and it's the Doctor's fault. The Doctor's immediate reaction is, hang on, I'm not responsible for that. Yeah. But when it's clearly not the Doctor's fault, that's when he's like, oh, you've killed Perry. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we've dealt with an uncomfortable thing there. So yes. let's uh, move on to phase four, Dave. So phase four, allow me to explain my rationale for where I've started this, and then you can rebut me if you like. I've called phase four the coaster, and I start it with Mel and take it right through to Clara, or Bill, if we want to include her as the incoming companion. Whilst Mel didn't necessarily work that well as a companion, I think you can see the start of that co-star concept there. And what I'm saying here is someone who is not the equal of the Doctor, but in terms of publicity, in terms of story, is put on a level with the Doctor. 
Mel was clearly intended to be like that. It didn't work out that way, I think, because Bonnie Langford is a wonderfully accomplished stage actress who can't bring that to the television. And her character's very badly written, and she's in a mess of a story. I mean, let's face it, she's usually, the worst time to be a companion is basically to walk in the moment Eric Saywood walks out the door and says, stuff you all. Mm. And you just as you're getting your feet is when the next script editor is starting to get his feet. So you've got this whole period of either no script editor or Andrew Carpenter going, what the hell am I doing? And that's the entirety of Mel's period. And, and your first two stories were written by Pip and Jane Baker. And your first the, three? And, uh, yeah, and the yes, publicity, well, yeah, that's right. And the publicity around it was her in a Peter Pan costume. Yeah. Floating around with, yes. with Jabba the Hutt. I mean, that just really... <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry. That, that's but, a bit uh, harsh. Oh, oh, oh. No, he, he had put on a bit of weight. <laughs> it was more the, it was more the Kirby Warriors. We can all agree the Kirby Warriors not flattering. I, the think, I, think, yes, I think Richard Marsden perhaps says it best when the shots were not flattering to his star. <laughs> I think... No, but she's on it. I mean, again, it comes down to that, cat, that one pager. She had, she's got red hair, she's from Pease Pottage, and she's is a, a computer programmer. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And the material she was given was rubbish, mm. you know, and she wasn't given the direction that she needed to tone it down. I mean, you've got two theatrical performers playing off each other, both turning up to 11. And it's not great. But I think my point is, Mel is written to be a slightly older companion than any of the other ones in the Davison or um, Colin era work. Mm. So I think she was... They were, they were trying to get to that point where she's a more of an equal to the Doctor and you look at where I think she does work a bit better in Terror of the Vervoids she is willing to go off and do stuff on her own initiative actually take a bit of a lead in the plot uh, she does it again in Time of the Rani basically the whole time the Doctor's unconscious Mel is driving that plot mm-hmm. again not really well written not that great but you can see there the seeds of this idea of the companion being a stronger person which then evolves into Ace where she's again a much stronger companion and she and the seventh Doctor are very much co-stars, I think. And that continues and expands into the new series. Rose is almost a bigger star than the Doctor is. Martha, to a lesser extent. Um, but by the time you get to Clara, it's the Doctor is the companion in the Clara show. So that's my theory about yes. Phase 4. I, am, I, am I right? But it's interesting, I? though, because uh, we did drag from the archives and doing the researching for, for our ne- next couple of episodes... Some of the press, some of the fan reaction to season 26, they're calling it Ace Who. Yeah, right. Which is very similar to what we just talked about, Clara, where she's she's overshadowed the Doctor. So, yeah, because I, I, I had the break at around the same point. I didn't actually quite know really which side of the break to put Mel on. Yeah. Uh, I was umming and ahhing about that. I, I did actually come up with... But Ace is very definitely... I mean, you can see the roots of Rose in, in Ace. Yeah. Um, I suppose... Season 26, just with the Ace Who thing, I guess season 26 really is, there, there's the Ace, the Perivale trilogy or the Ace Arc or whatever you mm. want to call it. I mean, there's the, the bit where, you know, he's, he sets her up and goes like to, to get ready to face Fenric. Um, and then, you know, he manipulates her in Fenric and then, of course, they have the homecoming in Perivale where she, uh, where she comes full circle, if you like. Mm. But, and, and I guess we do know more probably about her life and her background really than any companion prior to that. Because, I mean, most companions, when they're introduced, you get a couple of lines about who they are, where they're from, and, that, and then it's just forgotten. They're just generic person in the TARDIS. Um, but she's not... I, I don't know. It's probably not to the same extent that you get later on where, where as you say, the, the Doctor is really a supporting cast in, in, in the companion show. 
Um, then again, having said that, I think wasn't the plan for season 27. He was going to, Doctor was going to leave base at the Time Lord Academy or something, I think. That was the plan. Um, I think so. Look, what do I know? But Well, don't forget, we could have had Ray. Yeah, well, we yes, Ray. we could have had Ray. Yes, we could have had Ray. Yeah. Let's be thankful for small mercies. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't have worked, you reckon? I think that had Ray been a continuing companion in the same way that when Jamie went from being just a one-off in the Highlanders to an ongoing thing and they de-Scotsified him quite significantly, yes. quite quickly, they would have had to do the same with Ray and de-Welshify her very quickly yes, to very make sort of work. Sounds like me, really. I think. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a very sort of wide-eyed performance, I think. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know whether she would have worked or not. Um, I mean, I suppose you've got a few almost companions. I mean, look, that they had, um, uh, what's her face, in uh, Pauline Collins in um, The Faceless Ones. Yes. yes. And you could have had her instead of Victoria. That's right, and Jane Hampton in Awakening. Uh, uh, was, was she a... They did, did they actually... No, they didn't. Preview her a second. Yeah, no, I was going to say. Sorry, I was talking about I would like to say that. <laughs> oh, I mean, Neris Hughes in, in Kinder. Yeah. Yep. Yes, because of all the stories where you need an extra companion figure, it's yes. bloody kinder. <laughs> <laughs> but see, the thing is, if you had her, you could have cleaned all the others out. Yeah. See? Yeah. It could have been a very interesting dynamic. Yeah. yeah. Get as a companion. What about uh, <laughs> Rose? Onwards. R- Rose is fascinating because I can vividly remember her being cast. Everyone in Australia going, who the hell's that? And then suddenly this flood of negativity yeah, from well, the UK hitting that us. Sounds like, that sounds like Bonnie Langford, though. Well, but it's, without the it's, internet. It's funny, because when, when, when she was cast, I was sort of like, who the hell's that? And my wife said, oh, she's a pop star. Because um, <laughs> she obviously remembered whatever her song was, the Honey for the Bee or whatever, or whatever, or Because We Want To, or whatever, whichever song it was. You're absolutely right. Most of us had no idea who she no. was. But because the internet was well established by then, mm. there was just this wave of yeah. negativity from the mm. UK. And it was like, oh, she's a pop star. Well, yeah. Is this going to be another bit of stunt casting? Or, yeah. yeah. And yet, I remember us all at that special Code 7R viewing of yeah, the leaked version of Rose, all walking away and saying she was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, she was. I remember watching Rose. I mean, because I watched it late at night because I'd been out. And I came home and there's this big long email chain. Oh, we've got the new episode, we've got the new episode, come watch it, come watch it. And I was like, well, I've been out all day. So, of course, I got home at about midnight, immediately jumped on, frantically trying to find it. Got it downloading and thought, oh, 40 minutes for it to download. Yeah, I can probably do 40 minutes. <laughs> so I sat there for 40 minutes. And then I thought, oh, all right, let's let's let's, have, let's just have a let's just have a little look and just see what it looks like. And then, of course, forty minutes later, I was still sitting there watching because I really was. I thought Rose was a fantastic introduction to the new series. It was, and we all said that she was the highlight of that. Oh, she was. And at the end of season one, we all said that she was the highlight of season one. Yep. Then season two happened. Yeah. Yes. The which slide. is which is so so unfortunate well, because it, it is. completely like does anybody disagree that season two completely demolished the respect and the love that we had for Rose? Yeah. Oh, yeah. most definitely. Yeah. I mean. There, there's uh, the the thing actually that I remember watching was it the what's the first one the New Earth or whatever it is yeah uh, yes. yes yes there's a scene there where they're sitting on see the start where they're sitting on she and Tennant are sitting on the bank mm. looking over at the city and you get close to her and and to use an Ali G's and the look she's giving him is basically I want you to flip me over and bone me <laughs> <laughs> you you watch you go home and you watch her facial expressions it is. And then you're sort of left with, well, who, who put Tennant in the pyjamas in um, in the Christmas invasion? <laughs> Was it Rose or her mum? Answers on the back of a postcard, please. 
I, I guess to bring us back to our central point, there's no doubt that Rose is a co-star of the new series. Yes. If not the star of the new series. I mean, the first episode is called Rose. Mm. Yes. I suppose you then also get into, I mean, I mean, and I know it's set up that it's supposed to be the whole idea, isn't it, that, that she and Tennant become increasingly arrogant because, and, and then they have the big fall at the, yeah. End yeah, of the, yeah, yeah. at the end of the season, which doesn't have any payoff at all because no. they keep bringing her back. Um, and, and even if you were to know in hindsight that there's going to be a payoff, when you're watching that every week... No, all you want to do is just her to leave. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just to wrap it up then, do you think that with Clara being, you know, as you were saying, more than just a co-star, but instead almost the lead, is that an evolution a step too far? Look, I certainly found it such. Uh, Look, I'll say openly, my favourite companion of the new series, or at least of the, the official female ones, is Martha. I think Martha's where they got the balance absolutely right. I really like that character, I really like the way she's played, and I've got a lot of time for Martha, and I know I'm in the minority on that one. So I, I must admit, for me, I, I probably go with, well, I'm probably, I had to pick one probably Rory, but otherwise... Well, I was going to, I would have said yes, Rory if I could um, I, I think Arthur Darville is great. Yes. But, um, Otherwise, I'd probably, for me, it'd probably be Donna Noble. Yeah. I, I would think. Or actually, if I had to pick one, actually, it'd be Wilf. No, no, I actually, no, okay. I actually, I actually like Bernard Cribbins. Look, no, I, I like Bernard Cribbins, but... I, I thought, it, look, I mean, it gets really lame when he does it. You're the most amazing man ever and you just can't yes. die. Oh, but yes. some of the stuff where he... Some of the other stuff, I actually thought he was quite good. I thought he was really good in Turn Left. Um, yep. I actually thought mm. he, he was yeah. awesome in that episode. Yeah. And he was actually quite good in, in some of, a lot of tenants, the Summer Tenants' departure story as well. I thought he finally gets his adventure with the Doctor. Yeah. But, and um, sorry? And, and kills, kills him. him. <laughs> and kills him. But, no, for me, it would probably be, uh, would be Donna, because I, I just got away from that whole, the companion in love with the Doctor. She really, again, just wants to travel and experience the universe. Mm. I know you then get into the crap at the end of the season around... I, I was about to say, if Donna was on the written page, mm. I think I would absolutely love her character. I'm very sorry, I can't get past Catherine Tate's performance. That, you know, oi, Earthwing, I'm just a chap from Chiswick, who are... I just, it's just too strong for me. I, yeah, okay. It just grates me the wrong way. I, look, it's a personal thing. It yeah. works for some, it doesn't work for others. And, you know, I, I, I wish it wasn't the case, because I think the concept of the Donna character, as I say, is a wonderful one mm. that I want to embrace. Had it been on the written page, I probably would have embraced. Unfortunately, Catherine Tate's performance just doesn't work so, so it's the best new series companion when, when Sarah Jane comes back <laughs> <laughs> yes and, yes and no. just to wrap it up then so where to now for the companion it will be will Bill be more of the same or is there another evolution another phase have, have, have they made like? any indication whether she's leaving with Capaldi has that, oh, has that been it have to be I, I'm just curious because yeah. the, the thing I actually found and I know I think we've talked about this before I'd actually be a bit pissed if I was her at the moment because they went through the whole thing about casting her and we had the little skip to regardless of what you thought of it we had the little skip to introduce her and it was all about this is a new companion and this is and and then they've suddenly reintroduced Matt Lucas to every he was going to be in a couple of episodes and now he's in every single episode and a lot of the stuff I've seen recently even the minimal amount of hasn't really been about her mm. and you sort of get the impression she's just now I don't know whether there's issues with her perhaps and she's not working out maybe the way they want but 
she's really been sidelined in pretty much everything I've seen. I, I thought she was very hard time buying that trailer that oh, was released at the end of the Christmas episode. Yeah. Mm. She, she came across to me as very, very annoying. I, I don't think that's going to be how she's going to be, but the trailer, I think, did her a real injustice. Well, hopefully a solid in- introduction will repair that damage. I would hope so, because I, I would think, as I said, I, I think she'd have every right to be fairly annoyed, probably, with how she's being portrayed and, and, and... Not portrayed, but maybe... How she's being handled at the moment, because there's really no, nothing for her at all. Mm. Then again, it might just give her the, the career, her career, that left anyway. Maybe. Regardless. Well, it's funny because she was announced early last year. Not funny, but she was announced early last year, and she's been on the shelf for a year. Mm. And she may be, you know, the last for the better part of two years, she's probably not been. Working no, and let's face it, her appearance now on the show. Hey, you've got Matt Lucas back mm. in every episode, and now going to be overshadowed because Will Nascapaldi's last season and Stephen Moffat's last season. Mm. So it's probably not a great time to be really coming into the show, I wouldn't have thought. But but they obviously they haven't said anything about for those of you who follow it a bit more than I do, they obviously haven't said anything about her leaving with Capaldi. No, no, I've heard no mention. Okay. I mean, you know, you look at uh, Gallifrey Base's news page and you see very minimal mention of her in actual fact. Well, that's what I thought because so, I, I do sort of keep an eye on, on Doctor Who news sites. Unless an insider is listening and would like to leak what ex- exactly is going on at set in terms of interpersonal relationships. Um, we might have to leave it there. Okay. So just to wrap up our companions chat, uh, we'll um, have a brief chat about uh, who we think was our best and perhaps who was our worst. Start with you. Why don't we start with one of you two? Because Dave and I have done most of the talking here. So. All right. So Mark. You can <laughs> I will go with my worst first. I think uh, Victoria Waterfield is the worst companion for me. Wow. Do you think yeah. Amy and Webb being found has actually shoved her down the ladder? She was down the ladder anyway, but it's actually thrown her into the well. That's really interesting because yeah. she was very highly thought of in the yeah. yeah, because you've got to remember though, season five only had three episodes. Yeah. So of course they're mythical, right? We're getting to see more and I just think I can't... It's probably the performance and admittedly, you know, she was a young actress at the time and probably not getting the material that suits her in a performance but I find that character really really grating and look it's it's easy to say Matthew Waterhouse and Adric so I will and look they're pretty look these are going to be the usual tropes right it's usually going to be Mel uh, Adric uh, and and but for me it's Victoria Waterfield the best is obviously well, Sarah Jane, Tegan Javanka. I think the Tegan Javanka. Really? Yeah. Isn't it polarising? Well, she's like a polarising character. Why do you think that? Because some people don't like her. Yeah, exactly. I like her. I like, I like, her. I like the dynamic between her, Davison, and Strixon. My face has gone down in my estimation quite a bit. I just think now it's the, the, the language that, that she the, the character conveys is very... The youth culture. Yeah, it's it was bad then. It's even worse now. Well, uh, Harry Sullivan. Better. Sorry, Harry Sullivan. I've got a lot of time for as well. No. Um, what about the new series ones? Because you, you're sort of staying on the, this side of the uh, <laughs> this side of 1989. <laughs> this, this this side of form again. So actually, we did. Cast was quite good. I was just going to say. Yeah, yeah, no, we didn't. Grace. Grace. I think she was on a hiding to nothing in that yeah, film. She was just there. Really. She is the bill of uh, of the TV movie, well, probably. I, I think that she did the job. Daphne Ashbrook did a very, very good job hmm. with a part that was always going to put fans offside. It was on a hiding to nothing, wasn't she? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it was a very badly written part. I think, in fact, she's probably the weakest part of that script. Yeah. So for her to give such a good performance... Well, apart from, well, even with Eric Robertson... <laughs> I think it, I, see this is the thing. I think the master's actually quite well written, but Eric Roberts gives an awful performance. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably fair. Whereas I think Grace is very badly written, but Daphne Ashbrook 
gives a very good performance and actually almost saves it. Mm. So I'll, I'll give points to her for that. New series companions, look, Rosie's Rose Series 1, Rory. Donna Noble I quite like, but I do understand the whole, you know, Tim from Chiswick, sort of like Ace. Oh, you're Space Man. Yeah, you know, but I thought, she, I, I mean, I prefer the performance in Series 4 than the, the, the Runaway Bride. Clara and Amy, I think you've mentioned that they're sort of one of the same. Really? And I think they are. No, no, oh, no, God, no I, I don't say. No, I don't. You, 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 you've, you've been misrepresenting yourself, I was no, no, I don't rate those two at all, to be perfectly honest. But I do like Rory, like you. Brooke? Mm. Um, of the new series, I, except for the bits that we've already talked about about Donna, I, I like Donna, I like the dynamic. I don't like the lovey-dovey stuff that you see on either side, so Donna for me. And Rory, I, I don't know why the new series hasn't made enough of the idea of having a male companion, you know, a permanent male companion. So ho- hopefully Nardole um, works in this upcoming uh, series. Mm-hmm. As for the classic series, I suppose it's all the usual favourites. I like Jamie, I like the dynamic between... Uh, Fraser Hines and, and Patrick Trouton. Uh Sarah Jane Smith from my youth, you know, yeah, she's, she's just very good with Tom Baker. Um, Harry Sullivan, Ian Martyr, I think, uh, well, look, you know, everyone says, I think there's been a re-evaluation of, uh, of Ian mm. Martyr. I suppose there's a re-evaluation every so often, but there's been a re-evaluation in the last few years and uh, uh, sadly forgotten to a certain extent, but I think he gives a really good performance where he's given, you know, strong material like Genesis, mm. like Ark, um, and, and, and Terror of the, Terror of the Zygon. So, and I, I, I actually like Ian a lot. I think yeah. He, yeah. he, I mean, he, he gives that, you know, I'm the leading man performance, but he, there's, there's a bit of humour in his performance as well, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, sort of helps break up the Doctor's tetchiness and crotchetiness and all those yeah. sort of cliche yeah. words. Ian and Barbara actually are very good. They're, they're yeah. very good. Yeah. I think people should actually go back and look at some of those very early stories. I did. You're looking at me now, so... Well, actually, I was going to segue off that because okay. on, on my list of favourites, Ian and Barbara are right at the top. Yeah. So I have them very, very high. Uh, Liz Shaw is another one that I've got a oh, lot yeah, of time yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. Really like Liz Shaw. And I'll, I'll put Adric in there from the new series just as a very nostalgic thing, a soft spot. He was, he was my relation, my character to relate to as a boy. Yeah. So I've got a very soft spot for that. Least favourites from the classic series. I think Dodo needs to be down there. It's a character that didn't work and a performance that doesn't work. And probably Perry, I really, she really does great on me and doesn't work. And I don't think Nicola really can elevate it. Uh, of the new series, I already said Martha's my favourite companion. Like you, I've got a lot of love for Rory. And I'll probably put a sneaky mention of Adam in there as well. I think it's a shame he only had a couple of stories. Uh, weakest of the new series, I'm actually going to say Amy. I think there was a lot of fetishisation of Amy in the series. And if you don't buy into that fetishisation, she falls completely flat. And I didn't, and she did for me. For me... Probably with the new series, I mean, I've already mentioned Donna and, and Rory, and I'm really not overly struck on any of the others. And look, I, Amy and Clara, I, they're probably at the point where I dropped out of the series. I didn't particularly like what I saw. So, um, Ken's Mount, I like Rose in Series 1, as we discussed. I couldn't stand Rose in Series 2. Um, for the classic series, um, Sarah Jane was the companion I grew up with, so that was where I really got into the series. So, she has always been a favourite of mine. Aside from her, um, I'm also very fond of Ian particularly, um, I, I think. And I must admit, I found Vicky better than Susan. Mm. Yeah, I, um, I, like, I, like uh, I, I think Vicky's a much better written companion than Susan. Yeah. I, I think Stephen would be really good if we could see more of his stuff. Yeah. Uh, if more of it existed, I actually think there'd be a major re-evaluation of him. It does. Agreed. Um, I, I think. Well, it does exist, or we've been <laughs> a re-evaluation. <laughs> 
Um, I think, I mean, look, again, you go into the obvious ones. Look, Jamie and Trout, obviously, are very close and very close friends. So, look, that's, yeah. And of the ones I didn't particularly like, I actually, as I said, I didn't really take to any of the Davidson era companions, with the probable exception of Turlo. Um, I don't know. I just found Tegan too much for Loudmouth. Nissa really is just there. Um, and Adric, I don't know. As I said, I, I didn't find him an identification figure. And I think once you get out of the Tom Baker era, he really is just a fifth wheel. And, and yes, probably Dodo by the fact that they ditch her as soon as they can. Kill <laughs> <laughs> her off multiple times. That's right. And, and I suppose just actually while we were going through our list, one that occurred to me was Captain Jack. Um, because let's face it, he is set up as a pseudo companion, particularly probably in the Eggleston. Yes. Season. Mm. Thoughts? Uh, as a companion. Well, yeah. He works better in Doctor Who than Torchwood. He does. I mean, look, yeah. I, I think that the idea that he would be a major part of the 50th anniversary, I think, was... was uh, delusional? <laughs> was delusional. Wishful. Uh, it was wishful thinking, actually. It was him and Alex Kingston thought that we were going to be in the 50th. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think that's probably a bit, as I said, wishful thinking. But look, I, I, again, yeah, I thought he was better in Who than he was in Torchwood. Yeah. Um, and, and look, I, I think I, we've probably got just about enough of him, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And also another example of where, you know, John Barrowman is a very established actor of stage and yes. screen. And he, again, brings that to the role. And whilst it's been wonderful, and maybe this is a bit of a summary point, whilst it's been wonderful that a lot of very young actresses and actors have got their first major gig in Doctor Who, I don't think there's any doubt that they, the ones that have been more successful have tended to be the ones that have got a little bit more meat on the resume rather than genuinely very, very fresh very very novice and on those grunts we shall now move into our next segment and now it's time for the target book club in our christmas episode i set the boys a challenge to uh, reread a target novelization uh, which wasn't Terence Dix related in our next podcast we talk about it well we're here talking about it now so to recap that I allocated a story from season 18 for Dave, uh, season 3 for Rob, and because I love him so much, season 22 <laughs> for Richard! Yay! Yay! And we allocated you season 2. That's exactly it. So, uh, let's quickly go around the room and talk about the titles we, we picked. So, over to you, Richard. I chose Time Lash. Time Lash heavy episode today. This is yeah, very Time Lash. This puts the Lash in Time Lash. It yeah. does. Yeah. Well, I've chosed the Massacre. Okay, and you? I chose the Legopolis. Oh. Yes, so uh, who wants to uh, start off first? Let's, uh, that was written by Ian Martin Fitch. Yes. By Nigel Robinson. Well, that's right. So basically, from what I there was, a, I think, an epilogue in the book. I remember it was an epilogue or a forward in the book, uh, which talks well, about... The epilogue's where the spacemen come, I think, is Yeah, they, so they, basically, they kill, yeah. They kill the last of So them. in the editor's note at the beginning of it, it says, uh, shortly after completing work on the rescue, Ian Marta died. Basically, in terms of who wrote what, Nigel, Robin, sorry, well, Nigel Robinson's actually said, look, it was pretty much most of us finished. I chose the rescue because, A, I hadn't read it, for over 30 years, obviously. And I just felt, actually, Diddley Dumboys actually inspired me to go back and read a, an Ian Marta book. So it's actually sort of uh, timed and coincided quite well. I actually love reading it again. He's done it again where in the, like some Tyrant experiment, he's taken that two-parter and just embellished 
the heck out of it. Does he use the word bastard in this one? No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. But he's quite violent. He's a very violent, uh, descriptive fellow when they're talking about having uh, a fight at the end. Marta works his magic again by expanding the, the two-parter into a really enjoyable read. Uh, he does, as you mentioned before, he expands on the rescue ship going to Dido, or in the case of Adrian Rigglesford's Doctor Book, Dildo. Uh, it expands. Can't get over that, can you, Mark? Never forget, never let, forgive. Let, let's see if that makes the final count. It will. And um, well, this is the story where Ian refers to the villain as good old cocky licking. So yeah, yeah. Right, that's true, actually. <laughs> yes. Did that make the book? Uh, a variation of that, yes. The Sand Beast is is much more descriptive and actually quite menacing because I actually made. That's not kill with a firework. No, <laughs> no, exactly right. Coquillian, uh, description about Coquillian again, there's motiv- and, and obviously Bennett's motivations. Coquillian has got deep red eyes and he's got like a, this, the sonic sort of lance almost where it goes around, it can just blow things up with. Uh, the characterization's really down pat. One thing I did uh, sort of notice is that um, in terms of on the TV show, it mentions uh, Susan uh, very briefly in episode one. This doesn't sort of mention Susan at all in terms of uh, Barbara opening the door and and things like that. So in terms of rereading the book, I absolutely loved it. And I think it was also partly nostalgia going back and again reading a Tiger book I hadn't read for 30 years and just takes you back and I listened to vinyl records while reading it so it was really, I was really living the dream. You're in a Model T Ford by chance. <laughs> <laughs> what, what record did you listen to? Uh, 1983 Summer Breaks. <laughs> <laughs> and what did that have on it? It had Safety Dance. Oh, um, that's, not, that's not every bloody compilation album, though. Yeah, back then it was original. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it offline. And then, look, I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and just the, the, the way that Marta expanded the descriptions, I thought, God, the TV version, it must be fantastic. Uh, so I then made... I went back and watched the TV version straight after it, and the, the book is obviously a lot better. But having, because at the end of the book, the fight scene, the cavern uh, where they fight with the Doctor and Bennett are fighting is much more, obviously it's expansive, it sounds like a tomb, it's brilliantly massive and everything like that, and you're getting basically into a TV studio with two columns of smoke. A bit like the Three Doctors, really. Uh, But yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed reading another Ian Martin novelisation. I thought, um, I really want to go back and reread a lot more of his books. And I'll, I will actually, I've also got the uh, audio adaption of it as well, which is read by Maureen, Maureen O'Brien, which I might okay. go and listen to as well. So if you want a book to read, definitely Ian Martin's The Rescue is a, uh, a little gem. Over to you, Dave. Thank you, Mark. So I was allocated to season 18, and I picked The Gopolis by Christopher H. Bidmead. So oh, yes. He's obviously novelising the story that he wrote for television. Hmm. Overall, I enjoyed the book. I certainly have enjoyed reading it. I look forward to hopefully doing this again, Mark. We, we will, Dave. Fantastic. One of the things that I've noticed when I opened the book and read the first few pages was initially Christopher H. Bidmead, this will shock you, overwrites considerably. <laughs> There's lots of very no. esoteric descriptions about the universe and time and the relationship between stuff. Fortunately, by the end of what would be episode one of the TV series, that does drop away. I think the, the effort put in to do that does drop away as well as the page count is obviously um, closing in on him because part one, he takes a long time to get through. Part four, he takes about 20 pages to get through. Mm. So I get the feeling he didn't ba- he didn't balance his uh, episode count very well. That said, it's very competently written. It's a very easy to read. Mm. A couple of the highlights of it are the way that he writes the Dr. Adric relationship is really good. And that there's a lot of stuff where the Doctor's 
very happy that Adric's so curious about the universe and asking lots of questions, but at the same time is very busy and distracted and this isn't the right time. And that, that whole dynamic is very well captured. Um, and also the way that he describes the death of Legopolis as Legopolis succumbs to entropy and decays and falls apart is, again, done far better than it could be on television. Mm. And that's an example of the book going beyond the budget. Interestingly, what I did notice was that Bidmead actually takes a lot of large scenes or conversations and does them in a paragraph. So he will say, the Doctor explained this to, Ter- to Tegan or whatever, rather than actually having a descriptive passage, if we've already seen the event. Um, so the Doctor brings Tegan up to speed. But he also adds in some scenes like there's an actual proper scene where the Doctor breaks the news to Tegan that her Aunt Vanessa has been killed by the Master and allows Tegan a moment to process that rather than just the on-screen, oh yeah, by the way, your aunt's dead. I'm so sorry, he <laughs> walks off. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah. So that works well. And the other thing he does very well is writes the Master quite well. Mm. Particularly that stuff in episode three where the Master thinks that he's got Legopolis under his control and then the monitor's like, no, no, you're destroying the universe and the Master gets, well, oh, hang on, maybe this guy is telling me the truth and it all falls apart. That's very well captured. The big negative for me is for a regen scene that on television is... I think wonderfully powerful, it's well performed, it's got all that emotion, it's got that music, it's rushed in the book, and it doesn't have anything like the impact, and then it has a duff sort of line for the Doctor, so it says here, a smoother, younger face was beaming somewhat vacuously up at them. Well, that's the end of that, said a voice they had not heard before, but it's probably the beginning of something completely different, which to me is just a really naff first line for the Fifth Doctor. So, for a book that I was really enjoying, and does the fourth Doctor well? Does the Master well? I thought it lost it a bit in the end. But it was good fun to read. Have you read any other Bidmead uh, novelisations before? Not this century. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Choose the next good one. Answer. Good answer. Good um, answer. Richard? I chose Time Lash. And the reason I chose Time Lash... Yeah, yeah. No, well, the reason I chose Time Lash... Actually, the one you had? No. <laughs> actually, no, I read it as a PDF, to be honest. But... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> yeah, I, no, I chose I chose Time Lash. The reason I chose Time Lash is because uh, Rob asked if he could borrow my DVD so to give him uh, give you getting started on his new story. So uh, and in watching it, in pulling it out, I thought I actually haven't watched this for a while, so I'll chuck it on have a bit of a look. And I, I was actually entertained by the story, so I thought, well, I might as well look. It's given. I'll watch the story. I'll, re- I'll choose that as my book. It's a very interesting book. It has, like Logopolis, there are whole scenes in there that, that are several you know, lines of dialogue uh, on screen that are just condensed down in one or two lines of, of just prose, of just description uh, in the book. Um, the whole bit where, where the Doctor is facing off against Tekker and about to be thrown in the time lash is, is covered in a paragraph. Um, there's no, virtually no dialogue at all. Wow. And there's, there's whole sections of that through the book. I, I did actually get the impression that Glenn McCoy perhaps wasn't very happy with Paul Darrow's performance because Tekken doesn't actually, don't, doesn't seem to wind up with very many lines in the book. So I do wonder whether that was a problem. Um, he obviously then takes a chance to embellish it. I, I, I guessing these are probably things that, that may be in the script and were done for cost of time. I mean, look, we, we get a bit of background into the Rebels. We find that Katz and uh, Dick and Ashley uh, says them. Um, uh, were that we get a backstory for them and how they've been on the run for a period. And they were both um, high-ranking people in the uh, in the dome, and then you know as, as the the uh, Borad uh, killed their loved ones and whatever they they went rebel. 
Um, we also have this whole scene at the end where after they uh, think they've killed the Borat in the chamber, um, they actually go and they find 25 or 24 clone Borats uh, in, in a chamber and then uh, basically kill all them too. Uh, then well, there's that, that's bringing back memories of when I read that a long yeah, time ago. I do remember that now. Um, there's another whole bit with um, there's there's another bit with the bandals and that as well. So there, there's all these extended scenes. But no, it was a very strange book. It's it's sort of um, it's almost like it's meant to be read in conjunction with the team uh, with the, with the TV show. So you you've watched it now. Go out and buy the book and, and sort of relive those moments. But uh, look, it was an entertaining book to read. I to be honest, haven't read a Target novel for years. Uh, and I, I have, wouldn't have read that one probably since I bought it. So that would be, what, mid-80s. So it would be nearly be 30 years probably since I've read that book. How does the Sixth Doctor come across in prose rather than on screen? Um, again, he doesn't have a lot of dialogue. There's sort of a lot of stuff where he's um, sort of shouting at Perry and, and she doesn't under, you know she doesn't really understand what he's trying to tell her because he's thinking in big concepts and stuff. But again, he doesn't have an awful lot of lines. Um, so it's yeah. A lot of the book is done is done as description rather than, than dialogue. So was there any backstory about the third Doctor being on Cartel before? Mm, right? No, they they sort of have a. Um, they, I mean, they obviously do the things in the story where Perry gets in with the rebels because she remembers Joe Grant's name, um, and and they break the the picture and there's a picture of the third, the really awful picture of the third Doctor there. Yeah. But no, not no. There's no, no background to that at all. So, until the big finish TV come out. Yeah, or, or Rob writes a prequel. Yeah, well, <laughs> get, get in there, mate. No, there's no requirement for them to do that. So. <laughs> oh, come on, you could pitch it. Come on. <laughs> I could, but I won't. So, yeah, that was, that was Time Lash. Um, very interesting book. Thanks, I, I, I won't say it was a great read, but it was it was it it kept me entertained for the hour or so it took me to read it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rob? Yeah, so I uh, read... The Massacre, um, I dug up a bit of backstory to it. Apparently, uh, Luca Rotti and uh, Donald Tosh, I think it was a script editor at that mm-hmm. time, there was a bit of a falling out and there's conjecture as to who gets the credit in the, in the actual TV show. But of course, nothing of it exists. So we don't really know. No, I think his original scripts don't exist anymore. No, that's right. That's uh, Again, I've read that. Uh, so apparently, this novelisation is based on a, not the TV version that went out, but on an earlier set of scripts that... Uh, and, and I think some later stuff he added later, I think, okay. after he did some more research, I think, too. Yes. So, I mean, famously, it has the framing device of the Doctor semi-retired and then being grilled by the Time Lords as to, mm. you know, your intervention or alleged interventions uh, in history here. So that's the framing device for the, for the story. Um, to be frank, I didn't think this was a very good book at all. I thought that the, the author's authorial voice intervened quite a lot. There's a lot of asides from the author that sort of go to explaining someone's motivation or explaining this bit of history that could have better have better been served by actual prose itself. Um, I found it a particularly dull read. I thought it was written, look I'm, you know, I'm in my mid-40s now so it's not written to my age level but even having, if I'd picked it up 30 years ago I thought it would have, probably would have thought it was written even below my reading level there. It is not aimed at teenagers, but probably 12-year-olds, I thought. Um, it's a slog, there's too many characters, uh, and there's not enough attempts to differentiate between them. Um, and even when you get interesting characters like Catherine de' Medici, they're very one-note. So, overall, it's a disappointing read. If 
I mean, having listened to the audio, the audio is, fa- I mean, mm. fantastic. And the massacre has a certain, as televised, has a certain reputation as mm. being uh, possibly a genuine lost classic. So if you know, if an episode is ever found, we'll be able to truly evaluate that, I suppose. But this is not a good adaptation at all. And it's, it was, as I said, I'm disappointed with it, and uh, you know, I would never go back to it. I think it was the third novel. Uh, John Lucarotti wrote, and I, I know I think he went on record as saying it was the, one of the three he was struggled the most with, mm. and and he actually I believe even tried to get out of writing it. I, I think because that was during the point we're sort of in the, the mid eighties I think when that came out, and we're sort of now very much in the point where possible we, we won't ask Terence Dix, no, no. Um, we'll ask the original author to yes. adapt their script where where possible. Well, we're in the era where not only are we getting the original writers to do the job, but we're also, or Target is allowing them to expand their work mm-hmm. and give it more depth. And there's, you know, there's a bit of scene setting and sort of a bit of reality about living in um, uh, 16th century France and chamber pots and all that sort of thing in the street and all that. But other than that, it, it is a fairly colourless effort. And if mm-hmm. what you're saying is right that he tried to get out of it, you know, he's just doing this for the check. Well, I think I think it was very much a case he did the first two, and I mean, look, I think the Aztecs. I remember that being quite a good book. Yeah, it was a good book, yeah. Um, and I remember Marco Polo not being that bad either. I have more vivid memories of the Aztecs for some reason, but um, I, I think it was more he was really struggling with this, and I think uh, W. H. Allen just said, "Well, you know, you, you you've agreed to do it, so get on, um, get on with it, and mm-hmm. we want, it. yeah, I think." I think the problem with the massacre, not the problem, but the issue with the massacre is that the the dramatic event all happens off screen. This is all lead up and no yeah. payoff. Yeah. And if you want to read about the Doctor and Stephen being separated and being sort of backwards and fro and is the Abbot of Empire the Doctor and is the Doctor the Abbot of Empire, well, you know, good luck to you if that's your your thing. But this is all stick and no carrot. Well, this is <laughs> this is whatever you want to term it. It's just it, it leads nowhere and the massacre itself I don't think is even depicted uh, in the book from, from memory I might be wrong no it isn't it isn't it isn't depicted that's right no it's not I mean, even they the TARDIS and they leave and they leave and the doctor tells the bell that, yeah. yeah so Rob the thing that I recall the most about the massacre listening to it because it's mm. one of my favourite stories is that very rich dialogue both from the French characters and the Abbot that's not in the book no it's pretty lean right it's, mm. it, it falls very very flat um which is a real disappointment because that sort of dialogue could, you know, really enliven, would have enlivened the book a great deal, but yeah. it, it, it just fails to take off, fails mm. on the watch pad. Mm. Okay. It's a real pity, but there you go. Yeah. So, boys, you're up for the challenge again? Yes. 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 Excellent. Okay, so should we do a bit of so a drum So we're doing Target again? I think we should do Target again. Are we allowed to read Terrence Dick's books this time? I think we sold no Terrence Sticks this round, but next round it must be Terrence Sticks. I agree okay. with that. I agree with that. I agree. So, I've had a bit of a think about what to give people, so... And you're laughing, so... <laughs> I'm, I'm clearly going to get, uh, what, season 24 or something, am I? No, you're going to get the Pescatons. No, you're not. <laughs> I'm not that cruel. Uh, Dave, I'm going to give you season 9. Season 9? Yep. Okay. Uh, Rob, you're going to get season 4, which will continue your love of the Omni Rumour. In uh, printed form. You hate me, don't you? No, uh, no. Is he allowed to do the John Peels? Yeah, absolutely. Huh? Yeah, John Peel as well. And also, Richard. You know I love you. <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> Season 23. But I'm going to give you 
the uh, lost stories as well you can include as well. So it's Nightmare Fair, Mission to Magnus, and you the Ultimate Evil. Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon you should do Mission of Magnus. I think that could be very interesting. I, I agree. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you prefer Terror of the Vervoids. No, I might actually, off the top of that, I think I might actually do not need fear. But okay, okay that could, actually, that could be very interesting. Yeah. For you, Mark, we chose season 24. Oh, you really? But we have a caveat. Oh, here we go. What is it? You're not allowed to read any books oh. by Stephen White, by Malcolm Cole, <laughs> or by Ian Briggs. No, that's no, not, not true. true. Pick any of the four that you want. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, uh, Dave, thank you. Yes, I will probably read Dragonfire. Thank you very much. Be a man. Read Time and the Rani. <laughs> Tumultuous buffeting. Here we come. Thank you, David and Richard. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Yes, thank it's you. been great. It's been great. Thank you. Now, boys, want to plug your uh, difficult second album? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what one of that four podcast days there one, but podcast. <laughs> now, Richard and I have been putting together the Goodies Pirate Podcast. We're working our way through the Goodies episodes one at a time. We're almost at the end of season two by the time this comes out. Yep. And Rob, you're on there regularly. Mark, you've been on a few episodes. Yeah, and I hope the next time uh, you choose some good episodes. The... You pick the episodes yourself. I know, I know. But for those those people who would like to uh, follow our Goodies Podcast. Just search on all the various social media for Goodies Pirate Podcast and or search for it on iTunes and I hope you have a listen. I do, and I think it's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Rob, anything to plug? No? No, anything I have nothing to plug. plug. Excellent. Uh, again, thank you to Dave for hosting us and all these lovely snacks which are adding to my waistline. So and yeah. of course Richard as well for guesting on. Thank you very much. So I have been Rob. I've been Richard. I've been Mark. And I've been Dave. Keep punching! You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon. I'm Rob. I'm Richard. I'm Mark. And I'm Dave from the Doctor Who Show. And welcome to another... <laughs> That's the end. That is at the end. That's fine. <laughs>